We are living in strange times. Living, I think, is the most important word there, because I'm sure at least some of, some of you listeners have asked yourself or have been wondering what exactly living is supposed to be, what's it supposed to add up to in normal times. And when you take away part of it that is generally thought to be key, what's left? Is it still the same thing? Or is it something else? And how do you understand the sum total of what you still have left? So to speak in slightly more direct, plain terms, many of us, because of the global pandemic that is still going on, um, affecting us in much of the world, if not all the world, many of us have at some points, or at various points, been forced to retreat from social life or our normal lives into our own homes. We've had to reduce our lives and lock the proverbial door, or allow the door to be locked for us. I've heard it said that the passage of time has become more obvious for people who are locked down or locked in, and also uh, this passage of time has become distorted. Our memories and dreams are doing things that they don't normally do, that we're not used to them doing. I've heard it said that as our minds are failing to create new memories, given a kind of a desert of situations, we're falling back into the pasts that live inside of us. If you believe that we're really all just atoms or matter, and that there's nothing magical or a soul or anything inside of us, then it wouldn't be too pretentious to say we're falling back into the pasts that live beneath our skin or inside our skulls. There seems to be a world inside of all of us that's not just our personality or our ideas, but a picture of the past that we're able to, I don't know, teleport ourselves into? Walk through? I'm, I'm not sure the best way to say that. But the point I'm trying to get to here is that now might be a very, very good time to pick up Magian's Beijing Coma, especially if you're finding that you have an abundance of time, given that it's a very large book. I have heard it said, and you'll hear it in the interview that we have in this episode with guest uh, Ronald Torrance, that quite a few people have a copy of Beijing Coma on their shelf, but they've never read it. So take your chance here, if that's you, pick the damn book up, and then enjoy this episode. So the reason I'm, I'm suggesting that you guys go and read Beijing Coma now is that this is a novel told in first person by a man who's sent into his own very personal purgatory, you could even call it lockdown, I suppose, and he's sent there by a gunshot to the head he received in the brutal crackdown of the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. And of course, we'll be getting into that in the interview too. Um, a couple of disclaimers before we start. These aren't anything particularly heavy. These are just slips of the tongue um, that I make or made throughout the episode. So one, I believe it was just a one-off, but there's a book I mentioned. Uh, it's called, more than once, it's called Prisoner of the State. Um, you'll learn more about that if you don't already know in the episode, but basically once when I was naming it in the episode, in the interview, I referred to it as enemy of the state, but it's not enemy of the state, it's prisoner of the state. So there's that. Next thing, um, my guest on the episode is called Ronald Torrance, but I'm a little worried that throughout I might have called him Roland once or twice, but it is, <laughs> it is Ronald, not Roland. So yeah, Ronald Torrance. And another disclaimer, actually, um, when I was taught, so Ronald's Scottish, like I am, and I said to him I'd only ever had one other Scottish guest on the show before, um, the translator Brian Holton. That's not true. Uh, there's one other Scottish guest I've had on the show, and that was Adam McMurchie, 
on the episode about Leo Decisions, uh, Devourer. So, yeah, those are <laughs> those are all my uh, goofs. But given that you know this this is a heavy topic we're covering, and I'm certainly not an expert on Tiananmen, Tiananmen Square, 1989. So if you feel that there's anything myself or my guest Ronald missed, or maybe misrepresented, or if there's things, if you think there's anything important we didn't say, and we certainly didn't cover everything that could be said about either Beijing coma or the historical events it talks about, if if there's anything you think should be said, then please do get in touch um, via the show's social media. I'll be doing all the plugs at the end of the show, and the the links are in the show notes. So yeah, don't don't be shy if you have feedback positive, negative, or feedback that doesn't neatly fit in that binary of, you know, a pat on the back or a scolding. If you just have a comment, then it's very welcome. So intros aside, let's get on with the Truchific news, the translated Chinese fiction news. Now I'm being quite self-indulgent with the news this episode, because I got four items and the first two are basically about me. And the first one is really self-indulgent because it barely has anything to do with Chinese lit. In fact, it doesn't really at all, but it has something to do with the show. It's a little bit meta, and it's to do with me. And I'm selfish, and I'm trying to promote myself. I had a short story published quite recently, and that's not happened for quite a while. It was the only story I wrote last year, actually. Uh, if you don't include stuff I've been doing commercially to to uh, make some money for myself for for an education company, if you discount that, then it's the only story I wrote last year. Um, it's called Pen Fairy, and it was published by a literary journal called Waxing and Waning. It's issue seven of Waxing and Waning, which is a completely online issue. And the reason I'm mentioning it in the Trichific News is Pen Fairy is it's Chinglish basically. It's taken from Bixian, which is uh, well, it's a, like a sort of a Chinese or East Asian equivalent or parallel with a Ouija, Ouija board. Ouija board, and I learned about that from a fan who was giving giving her thoughts about um Sanmao of all things. Um, came up as feedback from the Sanmao episode I did on uh, stories of the Sahara, but the Xian character fairy that that's been discussed on a couple of the episodes because fairy is actually not a very good translation. Immortal would be better, but I think, I can't remember which guest I was talking to about this, but sometimes a mistranslation can produce, or an awkward or slightly wonky translation can produce some really interesting English. I think that was Brian Holton who I was talking to about that. So the the, the game of Pen Fairy or Bixian is kind of the event the story hinges on it makes up the middle section but i won't i won't say much more than that it's it's certainly not trying to be a chinese story but without the show i wouldn't have had the inspiration to write it if that makes sense so there'll be a link to that in the trichific news section anyway that was really self-indulgent so let's keep moving on uh, the next item of news is also sort of, sort of meta um i thought i'd put this in the news rather than in the plugs at the end because it is kind of news in a way. Um, I'm starting a mailing list for the show. I've got a grand total of five people signed up to it so far, so not really anything that would make it worth sending out regular newsletters. But I'm going to set some kind of an arbitrary threshold, maybe like 50 people. If I get 50 signups, I'll start doing newsletters. But I have I have linked it up with Podbean, so every time a new episode goes out, if I've set it up correctly, an email will be sent out too. But I am hoping to do more with it, but let's see if enough people sign up. If they don't, it's, you know, it's not really worth the time I put in. 
given that I have a life and a job and <laughs> freelance work and all sorts of things to be chasing after. So yeah, um, a link to sign up to that mailing list will also be in the show notes. Okay, now getting on to news about, you know, things not related to myself, escaping the narcissistic bubble, the trap of oneself, which you'll be hearing more about in the show. Some news about other things. Uh, and we've got one event, one article. So the event I'm covering in the news today, it's a virtual event. I believe signups are free. It's, yeah, it's a Zoom event and it's free signups. And it's called Lost in Translation, the World of Chinese Literature in English. Former show guest Nikki Harmon is going to be one of the speakers in this event. So I'm just going to read the description of the event um, because it's pretty short. This event happens on my birthday, by the way, February 24th. Uh, so here's the, the event's description. Literature is a powerful tool that can help deepen our understanding of China's immense complexity. But who decides what China book, sorry, what Chinese books get translated? As it turns out, many of China's most popular novels never make it into English at all. When it comes to Chinese literature, more may get lost in translation than meets the eye. On February 24th, three of the top Chinese English translators will debate the political and cultural biases that impact the books we get to read. This event is co-presented with Paper Republic, a platform to, ah, well, you guys should know what Paper Republic is if you've been listening to the show for a while. So yeah, there's that. Um, It's hosted, by the way, by the China Institute. Okay, and the next thing I thought I would plug, it's an article. The atmosphere has become abnormal. Han Chinese views from Xinjiang. And this is an article just giving a sort of a ground eye view of life in Xinjiang from the perspective of Meng Yeo, who's an international student from China, uh, who's currently in North America, but went back to see her family in Xinjiang. Um, and she's she's Han, she's Han Chinese. So it's her perspective of, of what she's seeing. Um, and yeah, as you might suspect, some of it's a bit disturbing. This blog post is from a series or a website called The Art of Life in Chinese Central Asia. And I haven't come across this before, but it looks really quite good. So I'm going to read the description of this blog. You guys can see what you think. The Art of Life in Chinese Central Asia is edited by Darren Byler, postdoctoral researcher at the University of Colorado Boulder. Boulder, Colorado, I've usually heard that called. Anyway, and he's doing it in collaboration with Uyghur, Han and Kazakh scholars. Sorry, in collaboration with Uyghur Han and Kazakh writers and other scholars. The site is focused on emerging forms of art and politics in northwest China and Central Asia. Based on years of ethnographic fieldwork in migrant communities of Urumqi, this site exists to provide a decolonial space for Xinjiang artists, filmmakers, writers, musicians and poets to share what is happening to their homelands. It is here to amplify the stories of migrants who come to sit to who come to city Either that's a typo or they're being very pretentious. It is here to amplify the stories of migrants who come to the city in search of ways of living otherwise. And the website's URL is actually livingotherwise.com. So pretty cool. And uh, the article is good. So I recommend that. And all my rambling now is done. That's all the intro, the disclaimers and the terrific news. So next in line is the interview itself with Lord Roland Torrance on Magian's Beijing Coma. Hope you enjoy. So I'm on the show with Ronald Torrance. It's the second time I've ever had a fellow Scott on the show. So pretty exciting just in and of itself. But we're going to be talking about 
quite a serious book. It's Beijing Coma by Ma Jian. But before we get to that, hello, Ronald. How's it going, and what have you been up to lately? Hi, Angus. Glad to be here. So just now, I'm based in Shanghai and have been since summer last year during COVID in China. But prior to that, was also in Henan. And at this point last year, actually, I was just coming back from、uh, Tibet. So this is the kind of uh, lockdown uh, realization a year later. Right. So Henan, Tibet, and Shanghai. That's that's quite a trio. Yeah, yeah, it's、uh, it's quite quite a journey.、Um, so yeah, and and last year,、um, I guess kind of traveling through Tibet while、um, COVID was kicking off, you know. And I, I actually remember listening back.、Um, I think when you were beginning、um, the show, even that COVID was beginning to spread, you know. Yes. Yeah. I. I. It's funny. I remember mentioning being in lockdown with lots of different guests. I can't think which episode、mm. we were on when COVID was kicking off in Wuhan, but yes, it's eerie, isn't it?、Mm-hmm. All these callbacks to the calm. Well, at least from a UK perspective, the calm before the storm for it spread across the world. Yeah, especially back in Scotland, you know. But I'm sure it will be an oral history project for someone in the future. Weirdly appropriate for、um, for this episode, actually. The way history is recorded in culture,、yeah. um, but before we get all serious、mm-hmm. and high-minded,、um, can you tell the listeners a wee bit about yourself、mm-hmm. and what your first contact with Chinese literature or just all things Chinese、uh, was? Sure. Yeah. So, as you say, and probably your listeners could tell by the accent. So, I am from、um, Scotland, from Glasgow, so the other side of、yes. I think where you are. And I think previously, you, so you referred to、um, another Scottish guest. Was that Brian Holton? That、uh, was Brian Holton. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's Gala Shield. So you're kind of doing a good triangle of Scotland there. Yeah, we need to seek out a Highlander next, or an Islander maybe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> someone from the islands. Yeah, for sure. So in terms of my、uh, exposure to,、uh, I guess Chinese culture or Chinese literature. So I really, I've started、um, really kind of getting into Chinese literature after、um, I graduated from my undergraduate degree, which was English literature. Um, at Strathclyde University, and、um, in the year after that, I moved out to Shanghai.、Um, this was back in 2014.、Um, stayed here for a while and picked up、uh, some Chinese literature.、Um, just ha- having had a general interest in literature、um, and not really ever coming across、um, Chinese authors, Chinese texts, novels,、uh, or poetry, even. So、uh, I remember. I mean, it was Jiang Hailing that. <clears throat> made such a great、uh, impression on me as, as a reader, picking up something from a culture that I hadn't been exposed to before. And then I don't know, maybe like yourself, you kind of fall down the rabbit hole, right? Because there are so many、um, different connections that you can make to different writers in, in the Chinese,、um, for want of a better word, canon, right? Yes, yeah.、Um, just when you think you're going to run out of stuff, at least in translation, from my point of view, you find some more. And the more you know, the more it,、mm. it starts to link up. Yeah, or the more you know, the more you don't know.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> I tend to find, you know, the more that you kind of read into something, you think, "Oh goodness, I don't know anything about that." You know. Yeah, it's. It, I didn't realize that you'd、uh, your undergrad was in English lit because mine is too. And、ah. don't know if your reason for going out to China was the same as mine, but I I went out to China. It must have been 2014 or maybe 2015. Academic years confuse me, but I just went out there to、uh-huh. be a TEFL teacher because、I、wanted to do something interesting, and that that all snowballed into me、okay. sitting here doing the podcast 
How interesting. It's like, yeah, two parallel lines because actually, I mean, I'm kind of cheating here because my um, undergrad degree, the major was English literature that I did a joint with human resources. Ah. And at the time, I thought the human resources would be the profitable smart. one. You know? <laughs> Much smarter than me. I did, I did English and film studies and then switched to English and creative writing. And somehow I'm not rolling in money yet. I don't know, arguable. I mean, the HR never kind of yeah. came through, you know, which was the ironic thing because I ended up down there, as I said before, the rabbit hole of Chinese literature. So it works in mysterious ways. Mm. So, yeah, at the start, I was out here to do, uh, I was working for a software development company in Shanghai. And that was at the time, that was for a year before I went on to do, I went back to Scotland in 2015 to undertake the master's degree in MLIT. Um, and again, it kind of snowballed, spiraled out of control into a PhD. So that was, that's it. Cool. Right. Okay. So let's stop talking about ourselves and start talking about uh, the man and also the square. So Magian mm. and Tiananmen Square mm. in 1989. I'm guessing just about all of our listeners will know what I'm talking about there. But just in case anyone doesn't, or just in case anyone knows the basics and not the bigger picture, which is probably more than a few people, let's lay it out. So shall we start with Magian? Who Who is he? What can you tell the listeners? Okay. So um I mean, Ma Jian, he was born in Qingdao, um, which is in uh, Shandong province um, in the 50s, so just prior to um, the Cultural Revolution. Um, fast forward um, into the period in which he was becoming active um, as an artist at first, because um, when he was younger, he was a, a painter. He was part of a uh, propaganda arts troupe uh, and worked various kind of side jobs in Beijing and then uh, moving to Beijing he moved in 1979 and was publishing um, in various kind of magazines um, underground literary journals um, and things like this but it was it wasn't until the kind of early 80s that he um, published the short story collection, Stick Out Your Tongue. Um, and, and this was uh, inspired by uh, his travels through Tibet. And it kind of unfortunately coincided with the um, government's denouncement of work, um, which they denounced as um, bourgeois liberalism. So he was a bourgeois liberal. Um, and then this text, Stick Out Your Tongue, was... Uh, confiscated, destroyed, um, and ultimately was um, the reason for him being banned from the mainland. In publishing, that is. He wasn't He wasn't out of the country just yet. He wasn't out, no, he wasn't out of the country just yet. Yeah, um, actually, I wanted to ask you something about Stick Out Your Tongue, because I've not read it, and it came up when mm. we were talking um, on uh, the old Twitter DMs before. Um, I yeah. found, just by happenstance, I don't think I was looking for it, but I found... Um, a some kind of a Chinese literature sonologist guy, a Western guy, had a blog mm-hmm. post up where he was rattling off a kind of a type of Chinese novel from a type of male Chinese writer that he found, I don't know, annoying or didn't like. And it was writers from around this time, Han Chinese writers who were going off to the borders mm. or the, the, the fringes of Han China. So places like mm. Inner Mongolia or Tibet writing kind of um either v- romantic either in a like violent sense like a wolf totem or in a sexual sense i think he said like stick out your tongue stories from these mm. like in quotes uh, exotic areas so and i mentioned that to you and you said that that's funny because that's one of the reasons uh the party gave for banning stick out your tongue as well as just being bourgeois yeah. is is there anything there worth talking about 
Yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the novel itself, I think this was at a point where um, at least the Chinese authorities were trying to promote uh, Tibet as this kind of, um, you know, Shangri-La type um, experience, really as a kind of tourist spot, you know? Quite bourgeois in a way then. Yeah, in, in and of itself, ironically, yes, that's true. And and Majan's take on it is is obviously the complete opposite to that. So um, the, the text kind of describes um, various things that he experiences in Tibet um, because it's semi it's obviously very semi-autobiographical and he talks about uh, relations between um, you know women and, and uh, older men and things like this but the th- one of the things I think that really must have struck a chord with the the censors is his description of a sky burial right um, and these are very kind of highly even within Tibet very kind of highly um, uh, secluded um, and, and sensitive what's the word I'm looking for events right yeah events um, so I mean one of the one of the um, quotes about the text at the time was that it was a vulgar obscene book that defames the image of our Tibetan compatriots you know and we might come back to vul- vulgarity and obscenity and fleshiness mm. uh, later um, but yeah let's yeah. let's focus on the book at hand Beijing coma. So I guess we're getting far enough through our narrative of Majian's life to see how that connects to Tiananmen Square in, in 1989. Mm-hmm. I know a reasonable amount about Tiananmen Square because I've read, as well as fiction, I read a non-fiction book, a really interesting one that I got mm-hmm. from uh, Edinburgh Central Library of all places, because I, I lived quite near it uh, when I was living in Edinburgh. It's like the only library book I've read in decades sadly enough. But it was Prisoner of the State, which is by, kind of, by Zhao Ziyang, who was a, a member of the, yeah. the Chinese government, who will we'll explain who he was in a minute. But he he um, mm-hmm. was put in, in house arrest for basically the rest of his life after um, the events of 1989, mm-hmm. and recorded um, on, I think it was a tape recorder, recorded this kind of his account of the events before, during and after and smuggled it out via friends and it got published at least in english translation via simon and schuster and it's a book you can uh, you can buy um so he gives his perspective from rather from the square from inside the government and what was going on inside the government is probably about as important as what was going on in the square so basically in mm. 80s reform china and just if i got anything wrong here just catch me um there were two, at least two, two sort of leaders in the liberal-leaning reform faction of the Communist Party. There was Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang, mm-hmm. and Hu Yaobang was the higher of the two. And he got so far, I guess, and then ended up being, I don't know, exactly sidelined or... Do you know what happened to him? Was he made to resign or was he just sort of politically sidelined? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, usually the kind of narrative is that he was um, politically um, forced to resign, right? Right. And that, that, was, that was it for him. Zhao Ziyang stayed in the government as an intu- yeah. influential figure. But some point in 1989, Hu Yaobang died. And uh, mm-hmm. students went, con- convened in Tiananmen Square um, to, like, mm-hmm. well, to, to, what's the word, to memorialize him and also to kind of, protest or protest to the government for the sort of reforms Hu Yaobang was was pushing for so so in in a, yeah. in one word more or two words sorry more freedom to open up Chinese mm-hmm. society um along like mm-hmm. some more li- more liberal lines and that the dialogue with the government never really 
happened, things just, they stayed in the square and more and more students gathered there. And then finally there was a massive crackdown where who knows how many people were, were killed. And it's since been sort of erased from the collective memory by censorship. That's a very brief, I, mean, I know I wasn't mm. very brief there, but that was about as condensed as I could get it. Is, is there anything else we should add? Yeah, I think just in terms of the scale, perhaps, um, of, of the protest um, itself, because, of course, um, people, whenever they hear the Tiananmen Square um, protests or known by other names as well, you know, June the 4th uh, incident, Tiananmen Square incident, um, it's it, it wasn't just in Beijing, although that was really the centre point of it. I mean, there were other demonstrations um, in other cities in China, like in Shanghai, Nanjing, um, Xi'an and um, Chengdu as well. Um, Chengdu as well was it? I mean, Louisa Lim writes about this um, in in her book from a few years ago. Um, the kind of effects and the impacts of the Chengdu um, protests as well. I was just going to say I had a slight Jiang Zemin obsession in my last year in. <laughs> I was a, a toad worshiper. Um, my last year in Shanghai, and I learned. I think it was possibly through um, Enemy of the State. I'm not sure, but I learned yeah. one reason he rose to, or supposedly one reason he rose to become the leader of China, the next leader of China, was he handled mm -hmm. the um, Shanghai protests quite well. And there was no mass mass mm -hmm. um, incident or killing or anything. Whereas I believe in Chengdu, something, there was quite a brutal crackdown, mm -hmm. but it's sort of overshadowed and mm -hmm. not as well documented as what happened in Beijing. Yeah, I mean, this this um, exposition of it, I guess, that Louisa Lim kind of draws upon, she is writing that in 2014, and it's fairly um, new, you know, it's new material. So, you know, you're talking a good 20 years after the event itself. Uh, so, you know, these things are still being uncovered. Right. That's probably a good point to emphasise, as, as much as we're able to say in a few minutes on a podcast, and even as much as Ma, Ma Jen's um, able to cover in a massive novel there's a huge sort of mm. i feel like the, the the monumental nature of this event in in chinese history even in world history probably can't be understated it's um mm. it's it's huge and i guess the book the book does get some of that across when like the rock star sui jian shows up at the square there's a huge cultural event as yeah. well as political was it it was sui jian wasn't it yeah, it was. Yeah, his so his kind of um, anthem to the students, right? Um, Nothing to my name. Chinese translation of it escapes me a bit, but um, th this was the kind of centerpiece of it, and very kind of interesting that um, it's highlighted insofar as you know these kind of student demonstrations always are um, accompanied by always have a musical accompaniment, right? Mm, right. Yeah. Um, in fact, there's so one of the this this isn't the first. Tiananmen's story I've read um, it's the second one in trans that's translated from Chinese the first one was um, Bao Shu's story translated by Ken Liu um, English yeah. title's really long what is it um, what has partial and kinder light appear that has a it's not just about Tiananmen mm -hmm. but it appears but the first Tiananmen story I've read was um, do not say we have nothing by ah, Madeline okay, yeah Thien, sorry if I'm saying her surname wrong, yeah, yeah. but yeah, the the title of that one is a song, um, but it's not a rock song. It's maybe more, it's maybe got more in mm. common with what a lot of the students were singing, which were old socialist and workers and revolutionary songs, which makes things all mm. more sad that it was a communist party that cracked down on them. But before I get completely miserable, and before we, the whole podcast becomes about just history, um, I'll ask you 
a two-prong question and um, probably with quite two quite different answers how did you first learn or what when you were probably quite young like me what were the first instances where you heard about um June 4th and Tiananmen Square and then when were the first instances when you heard about Beijing coma if you can remember okay so um in terms of Tiananmen Square it's kind of as we've said as you've said previously um it's got this kind of epic proportion to it you know it's got this uh historical uh epicness or or sense of a landmark event about it and probably we'll come back to the idea of landmarks and things like this um but probably the thing that people would recognize the most from it is the the tank man image yeah um of the you know the single solitary uh figure in front of the line of four tanks and of course if that that image has been disseminated so much now that if you expand out you can see the whole of the square and this huge line of tanks um progressing towards them so i mean i don't know i don't i can't quite remember a specific um point at which i first became aware of it but it's just something that seemed to be even as i was growing up it's you see it in newsreels um you see it in you know events that shaped the century of whatever so it's something that kind of is in the background um and then comes to the focus when you go down the route of learning about history um learning about other uh, countries histories as well yeah it was in the sort of like t- to my mind anyway when i was a kid it was in the sort of collective um vague awareness of communist china being a communist modern china being a communist country i knew that oh mm. um the government did something bad at a place called Tiananmen Square um they drove some tanks at some people mm-hmm. i guess they must be bad um i probably along the same lines of hearing about free tibet and thinking oh um the chinese government mm. does something bad to tibet maybe tibet should be free and never for you know why would i look into it any further than that and then maybe even when the 2008 olympics rolled around i became vaguely mm-hmm. more aware of of um the specifics but only really vaguely and beijing coma i guess i must have heard something about it when it came out or the year after long before i ever knew i was going to be living in china for so long or before i was interested in it but i remember misunderstanding mm-hmm. the premise i thought the premise was some a little bit like um the film goodbye lenin um i thought the premise was that uh yeah. this guy gets knocked out at Tiananmen Square goes to sleep or goes into a coma until 2008 wakes up and finds China to be a new country but it's not really what the books about at all yeah yeah that's a kind of a good imperfect analogy with goodbye lenin i think if i remember that film right they're kind of um modifying life around him right it's a brother and sister who are there i guess they're like 20 somethings and they're living with their mother who's really devoted to the east german regime like she does yeah, yeah. Uh, whatever the equivalent of i don't know almost like customer service if she thinks that the government produced tooth- toothbrushes aren't quite up to scratch she writes into the government yeah. and the government um, modifies the toothpaste that uh, the toothbrush factory slightly um so she's a real ideologue but i i forget if she goes into a coma or if what happens but basically the berlin wall comes down east germany joins modern uh mm-hmm. mcdonald's burger king germany and they try and hide it from her and keep up whilst they're going out and living their their lives in the new economy and country whenever they go home they have to pretend things are the way they are and then i think eventually she finds out and that's the drama the, the bubble yeah. bursts right yeah yeah the bubble bursts the alternate reality can't continue yeah. you know 
Yeah. Um, so maybe I'd mixed the two up in my mind, but the premise of Beijing Coma is pretty mm. different. So the sort of premise is that we have this guy called Dai Wei. It's not Dai Wei, isn't it? Dai Wei. Dai Wei, Dai Wei. Yeah. So he's, uh, he grew up about the same time Ma Zhen grew up. He fell in with the sort of activist crowd in reform, 1980s reform and opening year in 1980s China in the university in Beijing. He ends up in the square, um, in the kind of center of the student movement. And this isn't a spoiler. We know he got shot in the head at some point. We don't know exactly how. Mm. And he's been lying in a coma ever since being cared for by his mother. And most of the novel is him going back through his memories so we see his memories and we see him recounting the events and at the same time in a sort of parallel narrative we see what's going on around him as his mother tries to care for him and moves him around and falls deeper into poverty mm. so that that's that's it basically um and i guess the structure of the book the big middle section is the student politics which is probably the most to me anyway the dullest part of the book but is there anything else you'd you'd say about the plot and how it's organized that i've missed yeah, I, would, I mean, as you've kind of said, it's this um, idea, I guess, that the narrative text is contrasting um, Dai Wei's mind, right? And mm. he, he's got very a very detailed remembrance of, of the events itself. Um, and as you say, it goes into this kind of um, middle section, which is very kind of, uh, it's politically heavy, right? It feels as if you're kind of trudging through the book. But it's, I'm just going to return, Angus, to that question that you asked that I didn't quite answer there, which was how I oh, came across yeah, the sorry. book. And you often find it in, no, it's okay, but you often find it in when you begin to read, or the way that I came across it was when you begin to read, or when I was beginning to read, um, Chinese literature and it often kind of crops up on these um, band book lists right yeah you know or something that uh, you know is a- available mostly I guess to western readers so I, there's a point I'm going to make here that I can't well, <laughs> just keep to me oh my give, God. You, give yourself um, a minute was, and then if it comes to you great if yeah. not it'll probably come to you later what was the point I was going to make I'll put a note and I'll come right. back to it. Uh, but yeah, what you've said made, made me think actually something I was meaning to say. So when I started the podcast, mm. um, I did not want to dive into sort of like banned in China stuff, like, I don't know, Wild Swans and this book, actually. Mm-hmm. I did want to do stuff that was edgy or maybe authors who went on to sort of get silenced. But I didn't want to do like go to Westerner reads a book about how awful communist China is. Not because I think those books are bad, but I was trying to, I was, I was trying, I'd just come back from, well, I say just come back. I'd been back from China for about half a year and really couldn't shut up about mm. how different it is from people's, your average layperson's perception of the country. And I was, you know, trying not to be the stupid kid coming back from his gap year who would never stop talking about his gap year. Um, and one way to do that was the podcast. But I feel like now that we're almost 50 episodes in, it's a it's a decent time to <laughs> to go to the more, um, in quotes, obvious choices, the, the band in China books, because I would never want yeah, to- Yeah, you're kind of than... unbearing your trauma, right? <laughs> you're unbearing your gap year trauma. Hmm. More gap, half decade almost, something like three and a half years. Yeah. I wouldn't call it trauma. Yeah, the, the point, um, sorry, Angus, the point that I was um, going to make, I think kind of, uh, you've reminded me, it, it kind of answers the question as to who does this book like appeal to and what is the audience? Do you know what I mean? Like, what is the audience for this text? And you can be attracted to this book, but what I notice a lot is that people who pick up this book tend not to read it, or at least it tends to be kept on the shelf, you mm-hmm. know, um, as a kind of like, uh, it's a bit of a, 
symbolic tome on people's uh, bookshelves where they say, oh, you know, have you read uh, Beijing Coma? And they say, oh, no, I've, I've, I need to get to that one or, you know, I need to put a bit of time aside to, to deal with that. So it kind of comes with a whole background of baggage um, in a way as it as it is as a text and to who it appeals to. Yeah, it's sort of sitting there just like that way on your shelf, uncontained, vegetative. <laughs> yeah. I when I picked up the book so I was um for my I was doing a master's in publishing and I decided my dissertation was going to be on translated Chinese sci-fi but with Mm. not many clear ideas about what academic reading I could do I thought well I'll buy as many of these as as much translated Chinese fiction as I can on the cheap I suppose now that Mm -hmm. now you've uh, mentioned that that would explain why such a big book like Beijing Coma was so cheap secondhand, probably lots of unread copies floating around. But yeah, it was. I, so I picked that one up. That would have been like, geez, oh, well before the the virus um, sat on my shelf for more than a year, possibly up to two years before I finally picked it up because I knew we were going to do this episode. And yeah, so in a way, mm-hmm. I was. I mean, I was intending to read it, but I wasn't reading it because I was expecting a lot of fun. I was reading it for some sort of a high-minded purpose, talking about it on a podcast rather than, you know, I mean, in, in a sense, that's what I do with all my translated Chinese fiction. But I think this one, I really needed to kick up the bum to to get started on it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a kind of, um, it's not a book that you go to if you want to read something for fun, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it maybe doesn't doesn't help that the the cover is like it's all sort of beigey brown. It's a picture of some flasks on a bench, so it's not even presented yeah. as something I don't know wild or rebellious. And in a way, it's not. It's quite. It does have some artistic flourishes, but it's a pretty sober minded book. Mm-hmm. It's like a book on a mission. I felt. Yeah, and and just a, a kind of question back to you because your area is um, publishing, which is something that I don't actually know a great deal about. It's not my area at all, but I suspect that there is something to do with these texts and how they appeal to certain audiences. And it's probably the thing that you say about the cover is very interesting because you're right. The two thousand, I think that's the two thousand and eight version you're talking about, the vintage yep. cover with the the kind of brown dulcet tones. Um, the republished version from 2018 has a very bright blue cover with a stylized um, sparrow or dove um, by Ai Weiwei. Ah, right, okay. A Trump supporter. So, the, the, uh, yeah, I've kind of sexed it up a bit, right? right? Yeah, I'm just looking that, looking for that right now. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, yeah, I see it. Yeah, it looks like an Ai Weiwei. It's a, a scribble. It's a wonder they didn't put a cage on it, but yeah, you know. Maybe they've done that thing where the inside has a cage and then if you flick the pages back and forth, the bird's in the cage. <laughs> the cage. Yeah, I'm seeing, I've Googled it. There's another one with a bird. It's really naff. It's a bird with like light bursting out of its beak. I get, oh, yeah, right. okay. if you just Google 2018 Beijing coma, you'll see it. It's it's a bit wonky. I don't really like it. Oh yeah, gosh. Good, no. is it? it makes the brown one look actually quite palatable. Yeah. There's another one. It's popping up here in my results. It's the same vintage cover, but the words Beijing Coma are in mm. red and they're in more sort of a, I don't know what you call it, like in quote marks, oriental script. It looks more Arabic to me than, than yeah. Asian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but my my copy, I think there's a reason why it has a fairly plain design. Um, there's an also by my, Ma Jian bit on the back and it's got the vintage editions of Stick Out Your Tongue, The Noodle Maker, Red Dust and The Dark Road mm-hmm, and they're all like mm-hmm. a matching uniform design. So... I think first thing I'd say as a yeah. publisher is, oh, nice minimalist uniform designs. It's um, 
kind of penguin-esque in a way quite like it but that from like a mm -hmm. who's who's it for perspective yeah i actually did look at this in my dissertation i was looking at the paratexts of books um and i kind of clung to that because there is ah, some academic okay. uh, writing on paratexts and it yeah. is extremely applicable to packaging chinese lit into english mm. um so paratexts are all the text outside the work itself so they could be by the author like an intro or they could be by the publisher's like the publishing company's editor or the like the blurb or they could be by the marketing department so the quotes that they put on the cover and what i generally found is that paratexts of chinese genre fiction so sci-fi or also like crime stuff will have more they'll they will either present china positively or in from a neutral kind of just it's just literature enjoy it as it is perspective which i was framing as you know this is this is breaking the convention in a way because a lot of chinese mm -hmm. literary fiction will be packaged as being sort of abandoned china book or as being rebellious or subversive mm -hmm. which is good if it's a book like beijing coma where that applies but i was finding sometimes it was either being applied to books that were not really rebellious books or it was presenting a work which is very multifaceted as just banned in china and that's a bit mm -hmm. it's a bit depressing because I was trying to argue, I don't think I did it very coherently, but you know, in this day and age, we all live in our little ideological bubbles and we are kind of drifting into a cold war. So do you really just want to, or if you want, if all, if you walk into the bookshop and all the China books say, you know, this, this is the book to overthrow the, the evil communist regime. Are you really, are you really learning anything about China or are you just staying in your bubble? But um, mm -hmm. the, the mm -hmm. quotes on the back of this one, I think are, pretty good uh the best one i think is the guardian one and i've found in general guardian reviews on chinese fiction are pretty good they don't tend to reduce everything to politics so the guardian yeah. quote says magnificent this vivid pungent often blackly funny book is a mighty gesture of remembrance against the encroaching forces of silence and i think that that's great because it talks about something the book's doing politically in a meaningful way it doesn't just say this is uh this is a rebellious book and it also looks at the other yeah, yeah. literary qualities the fleshiness which is right there in the book's chinese title uh road to land of flesh or something like that yeah it's probably worth saying as well that i mean the the audience i guess for my jan just now is a western or at least english-speaking um readership right he's not um it seems that due to the his ability to or rather his ability not to publish in China that he is writing especially his last book um, China Dream in 2018 was published first in English um, Beijing Coma was published in English and had um, translations thereafter but it's also worth mentioning as well with the Guardian review that Majian does also write quite frequently for the Guardian as well um, particularly on uh, anniversary dates of the Tiananmen Square protests, they'll get him to, or he'll write a um, kind of remembrance type piece. Um, so his his kind of writing in this text in Beijing Coma is also supplemented by these things that are going on over time as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we might get into this more, but on one hand, I think it's a great thing that he's able to, you know, as someone who was there, feed, you know, get his articles in The Guardian. On the other hand, I think it does open mm -hmm. up criticism from i don't know pro ccp people pro ccp people to say oh look you have this one dissident author who you wheel out who you know yeah. is the only one you listen to which i think is it's a mean criticism but it's not 
completely unfounded in a way. No, I mean, it's not. I don't think it is an unfair criticism because in my research, I was using um, Majan in the context of uh, looking at three authors and how they kind of negotiate censorship or literary censorship. Um, and I went into it thinking, or I went into my research thinking that Majan would have been the one with the most difficult job because he's in exile, he's out with the system, he's kind of writing for a Western readership. Right. Um, there's not much readership inside. But as it turns out, one of the other authors who you've um, looked at in a previous show, um, Moyen, I, I think he did an episode on Moyen with uh, Lehila, right? Lehila Heward. Yeah, the lady with a non, a completely non-Chinese name that sounds like awesome in Mandarin. <laughs> she's very, very good with Moyen mm-hmm. as well. Her work is really good. Um, she's doing some really interesting stuff. Um, but anyway, so I was looking at Moyen and the third author is uh, Yan Lian Ke. Right. So what I found surprising um, was that this is just my view, I guess, but I actually think that Moyen has the most difficult job out of all three. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Um, the phrase path of most or least resistance is popping into my head. So I'm not yes. trying to belittle Majem, but yeah, he's um, he's publishing an environment that wants his writing. Whereas I've heard, like, I watched yes. an interview with Yan Nian Ke, where he basically says, yeah, um, no one I know wants anything to do with me. Um, my stuff can mm-hmm. sometimes get published and it can certainly be published in English translation. But like, I've not just killed off my professional life here. I've I've made my, I've chosen to be unpopular, but I'm just going to stick with it. And I guess Moyan, he's respected, but he's, con- I would imagine he's constantly having to walk some kind of a middle path, which, you know, that's harder. For sure. For sure. Yeah. He's, he's got, he's got the worst of both worlds, so to speak, you know, um, whereas Majan now, I think very much kind of knows his brand, right? seems that way. Yeah. Yeah. The other um, quote I was going to read here as an example of one that, kind of annoys me despite not being completely wrong it's the times quote on the back um of of beijing coma and it says a huge Mm. achievement a landmark account through fiction of a country whose rise has amazed the world but which remains cloaked in shadows finally written and translated Mm. and the thing is like cloaked in shadows not really china's not north korea but they've just said it because it sounds good that bugs me no, and especially when you kind of contrast with the content inside, it's kind of yeah, setting up a, an, an image which, uh, although, you know, there are political arguments for it, but yeah, in terms of literary ambition, I don't think very helpful. Yeah, I mean, modern China, it's the political system might be opaque, but it's hardly a, it's hardly a mysterious hermit kingdom or like a magical land of genies and wizards. It's, it's just a country. Yeah. Um, I, I think we might be getting slightly ahead of ourselves getting quite deep um i was hoping to stick to stick to basics so let's return to the basics we can go back yeah yeah let's rewind (laughs) um listeners won't know but i've categorized the questions about the book itself into the surface and beneath the skin so let's extract ourselves from beneath the skin and go back to the surface um what do you think the book's strengths and weaknesses are or to be even more pedestrian what do you like about it what do you not like about it yeah so I think one of the things that we've kind of touched on is the the kind of length of it which sounds silly for talking about a, a you know a novel um, narrative text but um, I've read as well uh, complaints of the book of people that have reviewed it saying that it could have done with a good edit and I think that they're not kind of uh, unfounded criticisms of the text 
I mean, it's easy to be kind of critical of a, of a big weighty tome, but it does a lot of things very well too. So, I mean, it, I guess it, the thing that it has as its strength is it's a kind of extraordinary example of this um, alternative narrative from the official um, narrative in China, right? And I think it might be helpful to think about these two different uh, ways in which history is viewed within the context of China and then from out with, right? Yeah. Um, and, you, you know, you can understand that writers would be kind of reluctant as well to pursue um, the, it's not an alternate, I mean, it's just a different, it's a different view of history from out with um, China, but you, you can see with the reception that Majian has received from for this book that it would be a kind of unpopular route to go down, right? But it does stand as this kind of example of, of text which is capturing a moment which is not accessible within the mainland. For sure, yeah. I, I think I remember when I was looking up, uh, trying to get the two Chinese titles of the book, because um, there's the, I think there's the original, uh, which means something like Land of Flesh or something. And then I think it picked up its English title into the Chinese. Um, I had it uh, Beijing Ren, so like Beijing veg vegetative comatose person or something. Um, but when mm. I was trying to Google or Baidu search with my um, very shaky Chinese, I think I was seeing people Googling for like Tiananmen movies or, or fiction to try and see what's out there. And I think actually some commentary in English mentioned as well. There's a pretty scant scattering of stuff even in even yeah. in English, but in Chinese as well, that covers it. Because I mean, even mm -hmm. if you could, where would you even begin? Like, can how the hell would you make a movie about it without doing something disrespectful? Yeah. Never mind inaccurate. Yeah, and even more so when it comes to the kind of academic reception that Beijing Koma and, and even Majan kind of generally has. He doesn't have, at least from my research or what I can see, he doesn't have a huge amount of academic backing behind him which is unusual um, especially again I mean I'm thinking about him in context of other Chinese writers who have a kind of wealth of information behind uh, or, or research that has been done on their work but with Majian he, he seems to somehow avoid that I mean there are one or two um, fairly big names in there that write about him but it's far less than um, certainly his contemporaries um, and then again when you're looking at texts which deal with this particular moment in time, we've talked about Madeleine Thien, but the only other name that kind of comes to mind is Shen Kui's uh, Death Feud, which is about Tiananmen as well. Right. Further to that, it's a kind of off topic. I mean, I think I would need to check the source again, but Yan Lianka was quoted once as saying that he doesn't necessarily want to write a novel about Tiananmen because it's something that would be, that he feels that Western readers would expect from him, you know? So he wants to kind of avoid yeah. that. Yeah, it's too obvious in a way. Um, if if yeah. readers want something, well, that's not long and is maybe not what one would expect, that that sci-fi story I mentioned, uh, Bao Shu's What Has Paschal mm. and Kind of Light Appear, that's a, it's a wonderful story and it's not all about Tiananmen, but listeners, you can read that in um, Ken Leo's Broken Stars anthology. That's where it's available in print. And yeah, it's not, I don't think it's available online as, as text anywhere. So that's, that, that one's really something and it's, it's written in Chinese, but not, not published in the mainland, you know, for obvious reasons, but it does, it does some similar things to Beijing Coma. Actually, it has some like real, it's an alternative history because time is moving backwards. I should, I should probably say that. I don't know, because some, some things go in normal 
forwards time other things go backwards it's confusing uh, yeah i mean but that that the, the novel itself is confusing it's it's a kind of it plays about with time and space That's and true. uh place as well right? right so it's it's not you're never kind of exactly clear where you are in the text um and that's also complicated by the kind of narrative that's going on with the main character Daiwei when he's in the coma because also for him you you he's a narrative voice so you're seeing it through the perspective of someone in a coma as well you know so it's so what Majan's doing here is he's playing about very cleverly with ideas of like memory and who remembers um, events and how are they remembered where you know what do places look like and then what happens when they change right mm -hmm. yes uh, going back to strengthening strengths and weaknesses of the book mm -hmm. um, one of the bits where I really felt like it was a literary book as, as well as uh, a political book yeah. was towards the end when things take a little bit of a mystical bent and uh, Dai Wei is thinking about how you can understand your life and he said I, I, I don't know about, I don't have a quote but it, this the right of Majian through Dai Wei says something like the only way to understand understand life and time is to go backwards through it that's the only way you can get a full perspective but living people can't do that they're too caught up in the mundane world they can't they can only go slowly forwards towards their own deaths but Dai Wei is in a way he's the lucky one because he's shut off from the world oh he's got his memory and he so he's able to use memory to travel backwards through time so that is a really weird parallel yeah. actually to uh Bao Shu's story now you mention it but <laughs> the thing I was going to mention is uh Bao Shu does a similar thing he has real characters from the events feature. So, oh no, who, who, there was that dissident intellectual who passed away of cancer a few years ago. Um, uh, Lu Xiaobo. Yes, Liu Xiaobo is a sort yeah. of a side character there, um, just like in Beijing yeah. Coma, where you have uh, Cui Jian and you have all the different uh, figures from the government being name dropped very regularly. Rewinding again, we're starting to get all deep again. Let's go back to another question I've got here on my piece of paper. Um, what do you think of the book as a a a political act? I guess we've covered that a bit already, and b as a landmark, mm -hmm. a landmark work. In quote. Yeah. So I think in terms of uh, in terms of a political act, I mean, how do you write about this event without being political, given the context? Um, that's not to say that any reference to um, Tiananmen is in and of itself a, a, a political act, but when you're writing about um, the events in the square with such um, visceral kind of realness that Majan approaches this um, subject with, um, it's difficult not to see it as a political act. And it's of course reinforced by um, his continue, well not continuation, that's the wrong word, but it's reinforced by the things that he has written um, since the publication of the book and, and the position that he now takes um, in exile and maybe kind of get onto that as well. But it seems that, you know, the argument would be that even if it wasn't considered a political act and just a literary novel, then the author himself has kind of asserted it as a political text or as a political act against um, a country from which he is now not um, part of either through force um, or by choice, right? Mm -hmm. And how about as a... I guess we've talked about this a bit, but as a landmark in literary history, because I'm, I'm just thinking this one came out, mm. was it, it was around the time of the Beijing Olympics or certainly when China was in, yes, here we go, first published in Great yeah. Britain in 2008 by Chateau and Windows, yeah. Windows and then this vintage edition 
or Vintage took it on in 2009, and then the edition I'm holding is 2014. Yeah. So, I mean, 2008, 9, 2 to 10, that was when I think maybe it's maybe this has continued since, but that's sort of when China entered, at least in the UK, I think, people's conscious con modern China. You know, it was a reg regular appearance in the news, and that's when Beijing yeah, Home surfaced yeah. as well. So, yeah, do you have any thoughts upon, on the book as a, as a landmark? Yeah, I mean, it's one of these texts that's often kind of considered a landmark novel. I mean, there are, di and there are different ways to look at this because what you say is right and it strikes me as well. I hadn't actually really thought about the coincidence or maybe not coincidence of the date, 2008, with the Olympic Games. Mm. Um, but what's interesting with Majian's work, and, and the reason that it makes that interesting, I think, is that Majian's work, the way, that it, the way in which it is translated is slightly different. You can correct me if I'm wrong here, but... Um, slightly different from most Chinese literature that is translated whereby it's usually written in Chinese and then translated maybe on average kind of three, four years later. Um, Ma Jian's translator is his partner. So it kind of comes out as maybe he writes in Chinese, but the English kind of comes out right on date as such. Um, in other words, the intended publication date is 2008 for this text, right? So it's very topical that it would be published on a year that the Olympic Games is kind of again reopening for China and there's another discussion to be had about the kind of impacts of um, the Olympic Games and what that did and geographically Tiananmen Square was very important for that for the the kind of opening of it um, and the media attention that was again refocused onto Tiananmen Square itself. Two things I can think of saying here once about Tiananmen so a thing I didn't learn mm. until having lived in China for a wee while I guess is that Maybe in as a Westerner, if you say Tiananmen Square, your mind jumps to the, um, well, 1989. But for someone inside the PRC, the square has all sorts of other, whether or not they know about what happened there, because we might get onto this, so many people our age don't really know. The square has all sorts of other significant meanings because it was a, on, mm. in the Mao era, it was a, a rallying point Um Long before yeah. Mao, um, May the Fourth Movement gathered on Tiananmen Square at least once, I think. So it's been a yeah. place for events, be they political or apolitical, for 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 donkeys for for ages. Yeah. Um, so it's a hugely even without the the protests and the crackdown, um, it's a really significant place. I just felt I should mention that because it'd be weird if we didn't. Um, but the thing about the the Olympics that springs to my mind is that it's 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 kind of how the book ends the book ends with beijing being cleared out and prepared for the olympics and i think mm -hmm. the i think Jen says it fairly directly that even in the international memory tiananmen has faded western companies are all too eager to rush into rush back into china after a, you know after a, whatever the minimum amount of protest is expected they mm -hmm. rush back in to do their business and make money and now we live in a world where modern China, you know, not not shockingly, because its population is is massive, and it had been in a weakened, insignificant China in history is not the norm. The norm is that it is a really important place in, in the world. But we've returned to that now. It's a part of the world that can't yeah. be ignored. And as probably as we've learned, thanks to Donald Trump, it's insane to try and disengage with a country that makes everyone's stuff and is home to a sizable slice of the world's population. So it's a thing you can no longer ignore. And I think the Olympics was a, a in, in the historical timeline was maybe that landmark. So I think to my mind, the book pairs with the Olympics really pertinently.
Yeah, it's a good it's a good kind of analysis of it. Um, and, and in fact, it also kind of um, highlights again why it's a landmark novel because it it exists again as a memory of of that time, right? But I mean, Tiananmen Square itself is a landmark by definition right. in Beijing. It's at the center of Beijing. Um, but some of the criticisms of the novel, I think, is that it's kind of too um, obviously critical, but that in itself is a strength when you look at the idea of um, what is what Majan writes at the end that, you know, this time or this uh, memory of 1989 has been forgotten. Well, what the work does as a literary text is to reassert that memory, right? Or to at least give a narrative voice, um, some kind of literary um, voice behind uh, the experience of the student protesters of that time. Yeah, and it, it gave me something uh, other stories hadn't. So Madeline Dien's book isn't exclusively about Tenement and the characters who end mm. up there are not, well, they're not there just randomly, but they're not student leaders or student activists either. No. Um, so yeah, Madeline's captured something really um, specific, but important to the events. So that's, yeah, that's definitely an important thing it does. Last surf, well, I know this is a, this is a deeper question, but it's something I think it's good groundwork to lay before we try and get really deep. Uh, what was your mm. academic work on the book? So you, you sort of mentioned it already, but can you give us a full description? Yeah, yeah. So uh, as I've said before, the the idea of, of my research is to look at how um, contemporary uh, authors uh, and the three that I use in my research are Majan, uh, Moyan and Yan Nyanka and how they write about history in a country where uh, the past is highly politicized. I, and obviously that's got particular um, relation to the events of this book. So I guess the difference here is that it, it depends on what view you have of them within a literary canon, right? Majian is not in um, a Chinese literary canon because his work is banned. So to me, it was very interesting to see how he could approach historical topics in ways that, for example, Moyan can't or Yan Lianka mm. can. Yan Lianka is a bit of a middleman, right? Because he does and doesn't sometimes, and he's kind of done the whole self-censorship thing. Um, Majian, to my knowledge, has never self-censored. Um, and Moyan then again has a kind of much more um, subtle negotiation between um, being a the Chinese Nobel laureate, but also kind of enjoying this um, both political and literary reputation within China itself. Um, so Majian is very much like the outsider. Um, he's often associated with being, um, well, he arguably is a kind of dissident Chinese writer in exile. And again, you know, like we've said, it's kind of surprising then that there's not a great amount of academic research on Majian's work, but especially if he is writing predominantly for um, an English-speaking uh, audience by comparison to other contemporary writers who are looking at history and at how you negotiate um, that highly politicised um, environment that exists in China just now. Speaking about Muyan and Yan Yanka reminded me um, one, I don't know, Chinese piece of Chinese culture I did get into properly whilst I was living there to some extent was uh, cinema maybe because it's easier to access Chinese movies with subs in China than it is English language uh, or English books in translation from Chinese lit. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah so sure. one, the one, one of like two or three directors that I learned something about while I was there was Feng Xiaogang, who's not like an art house guy at all, but he's, um, he's made some quite interesting films. He's done some like silly comedies. If anyone listening has seen uh, Kung Fu Hustle, he's from the 
the guy early on from the Beijing gang who gets his legs mm. and arms machine gunned up. So he's, <laughs> he's done acting stuff as well. But he, he had a film that came out when I was living there. I, the English English name was an interesting translation where they did some historical substitution. It was called I Am Not Madame Bovary. Um, I think the Chinese one, I'm going to embarrass myself here probably, Wobusha Panjinian. If it's not Panjinian, it's a lady from a water margin who um, shames her husband or something. So mm -hmm. um, probably a lot of our Chinese listeners will be screaming at me for mispronouncing her name. But anyway, he made this um, movie about a, a peasant woman, basically, played by Fan Bingbing, I think. Yeah, anyway, forget that. <laughs> this Chinese peasant woman who um, is cheated by her husband and goes on a sort of a legal crusade to get recognition or compensation. And she takes it step by step of the government all the way to the top. And the, the local government, especially uh, the guys she's dealing with are corrupt. And she does that thing where she does a pilgrimage to Beijing to try and speak at the whatever, the NCCPCCPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPPP
and again, it's the conceit of the novel is that he is still functioning. I mean, he's comatose. He's he's out of the game, for want of a better phrase, but he's still um, cognizant to a certain extent. There is an element that you, you are wondering if he's going to wake up, but these italicized sections are much more... Um, kind of almost literary metaphorical dream. right i mean and you get the idea yeah dreamlike mm. right yeah i just if, if you wanted to say anything more about that because it, yeah i think um dream i hadn't it hadn't occurred to me but dreamlike they are um some of them more than others some of them are i think my favorite ones actually are both dreamlike and also weirdly precise in using like medical terms to describe parts of his body which is i think really great because it does have like a um purgatory hovering between life and death mm-hmm. what's real what's not real feel but at the same time it's being very sort of um materialist um being a good marxist materialist and describing the particles in the body rather than like a soul you know and what's interesting as well here is that with these italicized sections that that's what begins the novel Mm -hmm. um with this kind of longer italicized section but perhaps you know a bit more than i do about the kind of misty poets but something like this would strike me as maybe something akin to what the misty poets might come up with so this is just from the first few pages um silver silvery mornings are always filled with new intentions but today is the first day of the new millennium so the dawn is thicker with them than ever. Although the winter frosts haven't set in yet, the soft breeze blowing on your face feels very cold. A smell of urine hangs in the room. It seeps from your pores when the sunlight falls on your skin. It, occurred, it had not occurred to me that um, he might be in dialogue or drawing on the, the Misty Poets. But yeah, they I've, no, mm. I've not really read anything from that time. We have done Young Lian on the... Well, I've covered one of his books on the show. That was the one I had Brian Holton on for. But yeah, mis- mm-hmm. mm. oh, right. uh, mystery, misty poetry I've not tackled, but that's reminded me of something that was in my head before. Um, I think it's intended as a being in dialogue with Tiananmen or what happened. I'm just going to be silent for a second and try and find it first. So there's a two-line poem by one of the misty poets, Gu Cheng, I think it's a pretty famous one. It's titled A Generation. And unless I'm missing something here, it's just, it is just two lines uh, in, in Chinese. And in translation, they are, the dark night gave me black eyes. I use them to look for light. And that's like a weirdly accurate description of Beijing coma because mm. the guys yeah. being present at Tiananmen and well, being there as a student activist got him shot. It removed his, yeah. his I guess, his his ability to like be in, be in society and be in the world but he's still got all of his senses except sight sight's the thing he doesn't have although i don't know if that's just because his eyes are shut not because they don't work and mm. when i so i was frantically googling that listeners won't have uh, won't have heard that part because i will have edited it out but the first place where i was easily able to get this poem was an article about the umbrella movement in uh, in hong kong and the article's actually the umbrella movement's poignant final message so i mean i don't know if how much these two things will be compared in in the years to come but i think there's something of a parallel there because although the umbrella movement thank god was never like brutally massacred um it was sort of Mm -hmm. it has Mm -hmm. sort of proved to be a failed a failed uh, protest or a failed dream yeah, and this is this is an interesting question also about whether Tiananmen failed or not. Mm. I guess you know. I mean, because the, this novel, I guess the conclusion um, is not that clear. Right. 
at least to me, I don't know if you think that the novel actually says whether or not it, it failed or not. I mean, historically, I guess, if you look at it from a political um, perspective, there are obvious arguments for a failure of it. There's victories in terms of power and then there's moral victories. And yeah, I, I would say like, mm-hmm. if I had to come down on a side, I'd say, yeah, it, it was a failure because they didn't get um, freedom mm-hmm. and they were treated ho- horribly. But um, if, if you're looking for a moral victor and a moral loser, then the Chinese government is definitely the moral loser and they must know it um, because they've never, they didn't dare do that again in Hong Kong. I think exactly because they knew it would be the, the bad PR yeah. that would finish them off. Especially now, now that you've got the internet, you can't, you know, it's not just international film crews with film cameras. It would be people with their phones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and one thing we've kind of, I know that we've talked about censorship, but we've not kind of squared in on it, but there was a very interesting article. I think it was in the New York Times, although I can't recall the writer. And it, it seems so, when I read it, it seemed so obvious, but it was something that I hadn't thought about before. And this writer had managed to get access to it must have been the kind of upper echelons of the kind of censorship apparatus um and she was describing how um even within the chinese government these um you know kind of government workers are taught what to censor right so they're taught about select very selectively of course but they're taught about um tiananmen or for example um Lu Xiaobo and the empty chair, you know, to censor this image because it has political connotations in the public sphere. I don't know if you heard about this. There was um, uh, some kind of a government um, acknowledgement of it. It was, I don't know if it was accidental or not. So I know about this because I went through Mm. a phase of listening to um, a podcast by a publication called The Diplomat because I think, I think, I was tuning in mostly for updates on what was going on between um, North Korea and the US or Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un because that was scaring me quite a lot. Um, so And so their, their big, um, their equivalent of book fairs would be international um, diplomatic summits. And there was one, I think it was held yeah. in Singapore. I could be wrong. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, and Xi Jinping did not show up. And that was um, read as sort of a as political messaging that if you're you know to 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 Donald Trump and his administration basically sort of a, a thumbing mm-hmm. thumbing their nose. So the it was just some guy high up in the Chinese armed forces who was representing China, and yeah. someone threw a question at him about Tiananmen, and rather than ignoring it, which is the standard I don't know response or party line or something, he uh, said history has proven that the Chinese government made the right decision. So whatever you think of what he said is one thing, but the really major thing that uh, I think Ankit Panda was one of the the podcast hosts, the thing he pointed out is that was actually a government representative acknowledging that it happened, which is significant in itself. Yeah, this was, this was Wei Feng Ho. He was the defense minister. Um, at the time and at least i think at the time um yeah and, and said that but the interesting thing about the quotation is he said also that there was a conclusion to that incident so it had you know it was done and dusted it does not need to be um gone back to or reiterated we move on from it right which is exactly the opposite of what Majian is doing with beijing coma with it being a literary text and what he's continued to do with um, his publication since. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm showing my bias here, but so much of this just makes me think of that um, that frequently memed sketch from the Mitchell and 
web uh, sketch show with the two guys in the Nazi uniforms, and one of them looks at the other and says, "It's like skulls in our uniforms, and we're all in black. Are we the baddies?" Like the guy saying, "Look, yeah, shut up, yeah. stop talking about the massive crackdown." I mean, does he? <laughs> what What's his point of view on the whole thing? Does he really believe what he's saying? It's hard hard to know. Which is interesting, though, as well, because comedy or humour is often a, a method or genre by which people can kind of bypass the censors as well. And Beijing Coma is not an example no, of it, but all, no. Majan's other work right. is. Um, and I think that it's a comment that, that is often levelled at Beijing Coma is that it's not kind of um, sat- satirical in the style that his other texts are. So, for example, China Dream. Um, which is his most recent one, 2018, is much is much more satirical and also kind of verges on elements of um, science fiction insofar as the main character is trying to come up with this um, microchip device that will, you know, penetrate the brain and, and allow the government to control what you're thinking, you know, kind of dystopian Huxley-esque type mm. stuff. Actually, that was the thing in the film I mentioned, um, I'm not Madame Bovary. So it's totally not banned in mm, China mm. at all. And it's kosher in the corruption. The corruption it deals with is with uh, local level officials, which was being discussed a lot um, in, in Chinese media and stuff because it was part of Xi Jinping's anti-corruption drive. But the lower level officials who are corrupt are treated comically quite often. They're not particularly threatening bad guys. They're kind of foolish and they are whiny and they do stupid stuff. And it was actually, it was very subtle humor. I was quite... It wasn't what I was expecting. It was like the sort of thing where if you're not really paying attention, you wouldn't get the joke or it's not laugh out loud humor. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's, it's worth to say that humor does have its place when it comes to this stuff. Anyway, I said we were going to talk about um, <laughs> this section of questions I've laid out and then I threw in a little sneaky question and we're still talking about it. So let's keep the ball rolling. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's fair enough. On a, on a book that talks about comas, I think we can be forgiven for kind of going off on tangents. I think it's yeah. okay. <laughs> it was, my, my brain did it. It wasn't me. Uh, so a thing that I, I gripe about Chinese literature that I've encountered reading so much of it in translation mm. and which I've, I would tend to agree with myself is that there is a, they're one of the cliches in prestigious Chinese lit both in and out of translation, is this one kind of very worthy novel, which tends to be a doorstop novel. So very long, could be Mm. much shorter, doesn't have to be so long, by uh, a Mm. male writer who would tend to be older. I guess Ma Jin is older now. Maybe he wasn't when he was, wasn't so old when he was writing Beijing. Yeah, he was was born in 53, but Yeah. yeah. So an older male writer who's written this big realist novel, which goes through the steps of traumatic parts of modern China's history and Mm. this might sound like a banned in China book but actually no you could do this um, in China there's plenty of traumatic steps it's okay to talk about Um, so like the civil war the Japanese invasion Mm. and the anti-Japanese war um, before that colonialism and then in the modern age um, it's okay to write I, I guess I don't know provided it gets okay by the censors you can publish stuff talking about how insane aspects of the cultural revolution were and you can write stuff set in the 80s deriding all the corruption and crazy transformations of china as it as it economically liberalizes so anyway yeah so what what i'm trying to say is these stuff exists in translation and in the prc itself these books that do all this stuff they're overly long and they go sort of step by step almost methodically through historical traumas so what I'm trying to ask mm-hmm. is, do you think this book neatly fits into that sort of cliche or 
does it only to a certain extent or does it not at all? Well, one of the things that I, I was going to say when you were um, asking that question, Angus, is that there's a good quote about um, that might reinforce something of, of what you were saying, because you're right. It doesn't just the, the thing that's notable about this book as well is that it doesn't just focus on mm. Tiananmen. It does focus on the Cultural Revolution as well, because that comes up in memories of you know characters, shared experiences. And I wonder how much there is a, I don't know, again, maybe, you know, your view on this as well, but I wonder if you think it's a kind of hopeful novel too, because it might be worth reading this just to um, give an insight into sections of the novel that are maybe a bit more hopeful. Um, so this is kind of roughly a bit, it's near the start, it's kind of page 41. Okay. We were a generation with empty minds. We thirst for knowledge. Now that China had opened its doors to the West, we devoured every scrap of information that blew in. China had emerged from the catastrophe of the Cultural Revolution, and we were eager to build up our country, our country up again. Honestly, maybe this is just me. I'm a miserable git. Uh, I thought mm. the book was pretty bleak. Mm. Um, I remember... It is yeah, bleak. Yeah, my, it is bleak. The, the sure, second, sure. not the last episode I did, but the one before last, um, The Strange Beasts of China, I mentioned that my favourite beast little kind of semi-human entity uh, that uh, Yanga put in her <laughs> collection were the impasse beasts. So there are these sort of like bookish, depressed characters who it doesn't, it doesn't specify what impasse they've hit, but they've got so far in life and they can't get any further. And now they're destitute and depressed and marginalized. And I talked on that episode, we kind of talked about, that, about those beasts mm -hmm in the context of like the defeated um, scholar from Chinese history who couldn't get into right, the, right. Um, the imperial bureaucracy and pass the exams and make something of themselves. But I yeah. was also, I mean, I didn't want to throw this question at Yan. It felt unfair, but I was also thinking as I was reading the book, this could be like the Misty Poets or the characters from mm -hmm. Beijing Coma who either will get put into comas, put into prison, or the ones who do make something of themselves, it's not in politics or culture. It's just in soulless money-making down in Shenzhen or something. Mm -hmm. And I guess I guess China is not a miserable place these days, but politically, I feel like that was 1989 was the impasse. And how the hell can anything... I mean, things aren't going forwards there. In terms of freedom under Xi Jinping, they've gone backwards. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, the point that you raise is a good one. I would have said that I wonder if that's a kind of East Coast um, <laughs> kind of mentality to choose the kind of, yeah, the, the impasse beast, right? Do you mean but, Scottish um, East Coast maybe or not. Chinese? Yeah, yeah, maybe it's, a, I don't know. I don't know. Are we a positive kind of uh, breed of people generally? But um, but no, I mean, the point is, the point is good um, because, yeah, what you're saying here is, is, um, it is the concern here then when you scope out of the novel. So take away to a certain extent the, the politics of it for a moment. Um, you know, the direction in which China is going at this point is becoming um, the kind of, I guess, commercial, uh, industrial, even like power hub, you know. And maybe again, it's something that Jan is actually critiquing um, here that if, to go back to your earlier point, we we're expecting Daiwei to wake up maybe he's going to wake up in an environment which is actually worse than the one that he was in, in the long term, in the, in the long view of history. My, my experience of China is, well, I've, I, I, I travelled quite a lot, but the places I actually lived were a, a small town in Zhejiang province and then Shanghai, so quite prosperous parts of the country. And like I guess mm. my impression was, it seems like a fine place to live if uh, you can 
ignore the unpleasant parts of the pollution and if you are not if you don't want things that you can't have like a vote or something um mm-hmm. so i guess someone like dai wei would be like yeah this this sucks my dreams of reform are gone but maybe someone my age who didn't want any of the things dai wei wanted you know they'd probably have a mm-hmm. you know maybe they wouldn't perhaps they would be significantly richer and they'd have just like people in this country like compare me with my own parents who or 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 your average person from my parents generation they mm. lived in a social democratic much more social democratic uk mm. so even if they didn't have the nice gadgets people my generation had they had a a, a security that me and people younger than me aren't going to have so i think like yeah mm. um, my my view my my thinking on whether your life is better i maybe be a little bit on the side of the bullish chinese nationalist who would say your quality of life is not dictated by your level of freedom. Those are kind of two different things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and it's, a, it's a, again, it's a kind of political negotiation, mm. isn't it? Because I, I generally, I think um, people will, um, I mean, China is a country in which you have this kind of rising expectation, right? Um, and that's the negotiation that you have with the style of government which um, exists here. But when that's not met, um, that negotiation deteriorates and, I'm not arguing that there will be a point where it fails because many people argue these things and usually they don't turn out to be correct, but it's a consideration. Do you know what I mean? It's a consideration as to there has to be some kind of point at which that is at least reckoned with. Mm. um, For sure. Just now and, and, you know, just more of a comment than a, or an observation. Well, I think um, you can be wrong a hundred times and still be right eventually. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. That's a good uh, motto to go it's, by. Yeah. It's true. I mean, um, how yeah. many times did we read that eventually a superbug is going to pr- spring up and ravage the world? I mean, and, and it's happened. Mm. It has literally happened. Um, most of the, or a huge amount of the world has been put into lockdown. Hundreds of thousands of people have died. Um, and we thought it couldn't happen than it did. Bird flu, avian flu could blow up. I mean, like there can be more superbugs. Um, in school, yeah. I remember in biology class, they told us, the more we use antibiotics, the more diseases will become resistant to them. If I'd said in five years, the overuse of antibiotics will create a superbug, I would have been wrong. But if I keep making that prediction, I'll probably eventually be right. If someone had been saying, oh, in the next five years, the world will be destroyed by climate change, they only need to be right once eventually. Mm. So I don't know, like there's the Gordon Changs of the world who are saying, oh, China's going to collapse and there'll be um, a revolution next year or whatever he's it, i suppose to to try and put a date on it is clownish but to make a reasonable evidence-based yeah. prediction no one could call you stupid for that yeah and i think i mean again it goes back to you know to return to the text a bit it depends on the perspective that you're viewing it from i mean i think when you approach a book like beijing coma and there, there are other kind of um tiananmen centered books or 1989 centered books like as i've said before shenkai is one kind of comes to mind he's obviously writing from a very different position or even for like frame of mind you know I mean this is not someone who is complimentary of his home country whether he's exiled from it or not so there will be a particularly critical slant that might not be evident in other authors works Mm, right okay Um, at least vocally at least vocally mm -hmm. yeah um getting away from um politics and predictions of, of doom yeah. um let's go on to 
I don't know, everything else uh, that literature can do. So we, we mentioned a bit before how the book has reflections on time, memory, life, death, and how we could try and relate that to politics. I guess we have talking about the future in the past. Um, sorry, how, how we could relate that to Chinese politics. Um, but like politics mm. in general, I think I had a go at that, relating it to generations of political change in um, in the UK or other countries. I'm not sure how much more I could say about that. But the thing I really wanted to say mm-hmm. is how the reflections on being unable to create new experiences and falling into memory are like eerily similar to at least my experience being in lockdown. Probably this is a really different story for you because you're living in China. Did you end up stuck yeah, in a room yeah. or a flat for any length of time recently? Not recently. I mean, it's a very good question because um, it's kind of highlighting this idea that we are coming at the topic from very different points of view. Um, I mean, my experience of lockdown at the beginning of um, the the COVID um, spread was probably this time last year. So I remember I came back. um, Yeah, which, uh, no, I mean, I know it it doesn't kind of, you know, it's strange. It doesn't strike me the same way, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, maybe that reaction is fair. Um, but I remember when I came back, so as I said, um, maybe at the beginning, I had come back from um, Tibet and traveling around um, Southeast Asia as well. Um, and at that point, I had to make a decision to um, either go back to Scotland or to come back to China. And my view at the time was not to go back to Scotland, um, was to return here. And I knew that I, would have, I, I was going to face a fairly um, intense two weeks of lockdown, which is what it was. Mm. Um, but really since that point, um, things have certainly not, of course, not been at the level um, that they've been at the UK. So this idea that you say is very, it's a very interesting one. It's about, you know, being contained within one's own room um, and not um, kind of having uh, that accessibility to go out. But it's something that also strikes me just as I think about it is that it's not just about not having an ability to go out and do stuff. It's having it taken away from you. Mm. So it's, there's this kind of element that, um, you know, previously you could, right? And now you can't. Whereas if you couldn't before, say hypothetically, um, if you couldn't before, you don't miss it. But now you can't. You miss what you now don't have. It's a, a lost a lost future. A thing that occurs to me now. So Dai Wei knows that if he wakes up, he's going to be waking up into somewhere less than ideal. And I think the elephant in the yeah. room in the UK where we've been in lockdown for so long is not just how dire is our situation now but if it should well i think there's a normality is not coming back when the virus is gone what are mm. we going to be waking up into probably nothing so fun mm. nothing that fun mm. which you know 2000 and speaking of 2007 and 2008 and that might have been the chinese olympics but here in the uk that was another catastrophe that was the uh, financial collapse yeah. and that, that feels like that's right yeah. i mean maybe maybe the economy did recover from that but i feel like the ramifications of that never really healed i mean we've got boris johnson as prime minister things aren't <laughs> i mean we're talking about it but it's a very good point and, and it's something about um maybe it's something that is not um as at the forefront of i don't know our generation's mind is like how do you you know what do you say about history how do you write history who is writing history um and what are the one of the things that i think about more often now especially with covid is who owns the narrative of it Mm -hmm. um which may sound like a silly question but when you've got um opposing narratives 
you know, this is exactly what Beijing Coma does. It's another narrative of a historical event. Um, so at the end of the day, whose narrative is the one that comes up on top? Because there are very dangerous routes that that narrative, in my view, could go down um, or ones where there's a more kind of um, shared um, understanding of it completely. And, and that, that, that's an open question because obviously the history has not concluded yet insofar as COVID, but it's something that's maybe worth thinking about is who, who is directing the course of the narrative of it. I remember um, a few years back, there was a bit of a trend of books from people who'd worked in the NHS sort of telling their stories. I can imagine those might be making right, a comeback. Right. Yeah, and, and certainly they're kind of um, popular over here. I couldn't, I couldn't name you any names, unfortunately, but I recently went to um, uh, one of these new bookshops that pops up in Shanghai now and then, but, and they've got a whole section on pandemic literature, you know, with all these kind of covers with people with masks on them, you know, so it's another genre that people might be studying in future right um well there's a there's a point about who controls the narrative because i'd imagine i mean based on what i've seen in western media again to kind of take the point of view of some of the more nationalist chinese friends i had oh the western media doesn't tell you the truth about china it only focuses on the negative well to some extent they're right because if i was making my basing my assumptions on things i'd read about the pandemic in china here I would maybe be working on the assumption that you just couldn't talk about what had gone on inside the health service. Everything's censored and controlled. Mm. Um, mm. But probably based on my experience living in China, the reality is plenty of things are not censored. The country is definitely not under control. It's it's a quite a chaotic place in so many ways. But plenty of things can be read about and bought and sold. Um, you just have to be aware that the invisible hand of censorship is always there. But that doesn't mean you, you're not going, there's, it doesn't mean there can't be a pandemic section in the bookshop, for example. Yeah, exactly. And, and in, a kind of interesting point, just to follow that up, is I, I can't um, remember the name. I think it was Fang Fang, Fang with yeah. um, Wuhan yep. Diary. Yeah, so I, I didn't quite follow that, um, but I, I knew of it. I, I knew that she had written this um almost, I guess, kind of life writing type text about the initial outbreak from Wuhan and then somehow fell foul. Yes. You know, so so, so you're right. I mean, it kind of does exist and then sometimes doesn't, but then also happens through different things as well. You mentioned Fan Bingbing earlier in the I Am Not um, Madame Bovary, who also fell foul, but not through any censorship or anything like that it's just because she was avoiding paying tax so (laughs) you know i mean these things happen just as equally back home as well yeah Yeah. shed a tear for all rich tax dodgers (laughs) when are they gonna get their magian i don't have anything deep to say here but yeah fang fang is maybe there is something to say about how publishing had a role in uh what she's the 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 criticism she has suffered because um Mm. when she was posting her blog in Chinese uh, on the Chinese internet I think it was being censored but the netizens to use popular word the netizens I think a lot of them were impressed or sympathetic popular opinion was maybe I think on her side but of course this stuff gets covered in the western media and of course any Mm -hmm. publisher that wants to um I don't know sell a lot of books but um have some kind of um, morally righteous cause to justify it i think they were all competing for the rights to translate and publish this thing and harper collins banged it out in english a german publisher banged it out in german very fast and of course from that mm. point um it becomes very easy to attack fang jie uh, fang jie, 
Feng mm. Feng for um, giving ammunition to the um, you know the critics of China, and there was a there was a kerfuffle yeah. over the English books subtitle it was wuhan diary and i would have to i would have to fact check this but the subtitle was first was like dispatches from a i forget what it was but they changed it um quarantine city yeah i don't know if that's the original if that's the original one or the revised one but Mm -hmm. uh, they revised it to appease basically angry people in china but i think for at least for fang fang uh, the damage was done and she's um yeah i don't think anything awful has happened to her but she's had to deal with that hatred well i guess anger from the nationalistic netizens and also the, the government and maybe her publishers too mm-hmm. yeah we're let's let's get back to 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 beijing coma uh here is another question i guess this does also relate to writers who get in trouble or choose to take uh, a more risky road. So this is another um, recall to two past episodes, uh, one on Yang Wien, who we already talked about, a misty poet, and also Zhu Zhu, a guy I covered early in the show, who's not banned in China at all, but is maybe doing something a bit similar to Yang Lian and, and the misty poets, and maybe to Ma Jian to some extent. Yeah. And what these guys got me looking into, something I never thought about before, is um, what's the difference between an exile an emigrant and an emigre. Um, I guess an emigrant, that's the easiest one. That's someone who leaves their country. But like, yeah. what the hell do these words have to do with each other? And I think listeners mm-hmm. might be amused to know both me and uh, Ronald have these three have three tabs open in our browser with the definitions for all these words. Um, yeah, so we should get them right. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you want to go turn about? I'll do exile first. Is that the first? Yeah, I'll do exile first. Okay, so sure. this is a, yeah, yeah. a noun and a verb. Uh, the noun is a state of being barred from one's native country, typical, typically for political or punitive reasons. And the verb is expel and bar someone from their native country, typical for political or punitive reasons. Um, yeah, do you want to do okay. one of the other words? Okay, so I had, um, so we've done exile. I had em- uh Emigrant, right, which is a noun meaning one who leaves one's place of residence or country to live elsewhere. Um, this one, actually, Angus, I'm going to steal uh, emigre from you because it's also a synonym with this word as right. well, which is especially used um, of a person who has left for political reasons. Right. Which I think more accurately fits Magia, and I don't know if uh, emigrant necessarily... I mean, by definition, yeah, he did leave once, but he did leave China um, as a place of residence or country of residence, but it wasn't um, necessarily by choice. It was because of political reasons. So he has more, I guess, emigre, right? Yeah, I think, so, it, so there is some academic writing or at least some fairly academic-ish bloggy mm-hmm. writing I've found. And it's kind of pointing out how these words bleed into each other a wee bit and how exile, mm-hmm. although the definition says... Um, someone the verb is expelling someone um and being barred from your country but um yeah in some ways an exile can be a little bit more fuzzy than that you might have chosen to live in exile in which case i think you'd technically be an emigre but the word exile it's not like it wouldn't there's no way it could be used to describe you and i think there's also right there's other thoughts on what exile means could you have exiled yourself from yourself could you have exiled yourself from society could you have exiled yourself from a literary scene 
like exile can have lots of less physical tangible concrete forms so it's and when it comes to like like juju was an interesting guy because he was trying to almost mm. simulate exile in his poetry and he was writing in chinese but from canada i think but there was nothing politically yeah. he, he he wasn't in it for the politics it was maybe more for the romantic uh, literary idea trying to reach into yeah, the yeah. literary beyond with poetry and anyway i'm i'm rambling here no no not at all because i mean it's a kind of interest it's a, and i think it's a good um contrast worth highlighting i mean i know that shu yukong writes in a lot more detail about this and he compares um majan with gao xin jan who i think i'm gao xin jian, yeah the other nobel winner the, yeah the other nobel winner right <laughs> so i don't know as much about him but i know that he is always considered a kind of emigre writer as well um in fact i don't think that i think that when he won the nobel um even the chinese government acknowledged it but they said it was unfortunate that he was a French citizen. Yeah, um, they did, yeah. But his works kind of deal with these kind of things. He had one, um, I can't remember the Chinese name, but the English name was Bus Stop, and it was a drama mm-hmm. um, about students during the Tiananmen protests as well. But it does, it's relevant because, I mean, Majan, again, it's kind of unclear about, maybe you've read more into this recently than I have, but... Um, to me, at least, it's kind of unclear whether he is actually in exile or not, because even he sometimes describes it as a self-imposed exile. And I, I don't know. I mean, I suppose that's maybe that's just a misnomer because he has exiled himself. He lives in London. Um, but in one of the prefaces, I believe it's for Beijing Coma, the um, 2014 edition, he talks about going back, but feeling like a ghost. Mm, yeah. But certainly the most recent time that he tried to or get anywhere near the mainland was in 2018 where he was um, he was presenting or he was a guest at the um, Hong Kong Literary Festival. Um, and that was when the incident with the tycoon, um, they you know decided not to um, or to cancel his promotional talks for China Dream um, because they, d- they didn't want him to they didn't want to be a platform to promote the political interests of any one individual, but because of public opinion, they kind of reversed their decision. As, as you were talking, I, I was still listening, but I was um, Googling Gao Xingjian because he was mm. a name that popped up when I was researching my dissertation, trying to look for these cases of trying to figure out if English translation was trying to make every Chinese writer like a, a, a dissident, which is the other, maybe the fourth word in that right, trio right. we weren't using. And yeah. I've not read any Gaoxing Jian, but I did stumble across mm-hmm. um, two sort of ideas or concepts from his writing. I'm going to have to, there's right. a big article here. I'm going to hit control F so that I can find the keyword I'm looking for. Um, yeah. Um, so he has this thing called a cold, a cold literature, which was a style that he was um, trying to pursue in his writing. Um, let me see if I can. Yeah. So here, here here's a quote. Um Cold literature is literature that will flee in order to survive. It is literature that refuses to be strangled by society in its quest for spiritual salvation. If a race cannot accommodate this sort of non-utilitarian literature, it is not merely a misfortune for the writer, but a tragedy for the race. 
and there's other things he writes that are along a similar line. And there's another idea Gao has, again, which I've only read secondhand, called Noism, which is basically, I think, just refute. Oh, this is Japanese. No, concept. I think it's Noism as in like saying no and then ism stuck on the end. Oh, I, I think right, I right. think that's what it is. So again, like refusing to be anyone else's, you know, refusing to be strangled by any society or any interest in society or or, or, or what or what. So but of course, if you're a Western publisher, are you going to say that? Or are you going to say he's in exile? Mm, of course, mm, if you're trying to sell mm. your books, you, you'll, you'll go for that. It's easier. Um, it's interesting that he's a name that comes up. I, I don't, I, the only text that I'm familiar um, with from um, Gao Xingjian is Soul Mountain. Mm. Um, the, the kind of big, it's another big weighty novel as well. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that he comes up in relation to Magian as well. Um, especially in the article um, in the Shuyu Kong one is, is really a good article to kind of put them in context. Um, and he talks about um, the, the kind of nomadic elements or, or the kind of idea of them being, um, having a consciousness in exile um, and, and does a kind of um, comparative reading of their, their body of work. From yeah. Um, what what you said about Majian trying to get back to the mainland or having visited that um again that made me think about these all these authors and times when i've had to think or come into contact with people writing about whether or not they're exiles and so on um i think on on one hand there is this line of thought i had when i was researching my dissertation was that it's such a shame that Mm. an author seems a chinese author who's in translation or trying to do some write something political has to be in like a stuck in a binary state where they're either publishable in china and playing it safe or they decide to stop playing it safe and then they are immediately flipped over almost like cold war style to being existing only in translation and being wheeled out as a dissident someone who's trying to bring down the chinese government even if that's not at all what they're trying to do with their writing so but Mm -hmm. as i've done the podcast i found it's not really that simple um so um i didn't bring this up directly when I had Brian Holton on because he's Yang Lian's translator, but there's an academic article mm-hmm. um, on Yang Lian and his writing, which is sort of a critical one. I linked to it in the show notes for that episode, yeah. <clears throat> which says how the author has kind of, the poet has played a role in presenting himself as a little bit of an exile, whether it's subtly or indirectly, but he's he's not banned in China. He maybe he hit some controversies, but things have since died down and he's been able to go back I guess Magian's not really pursuing that because he's he's writing books like China Dream, but it's just I think if there's a point I'm trying to make here is that it's complicated. Being banned yeah. once in China does not mean being banned for good. It seems to vary person by person and what they do with their their literary career. Yeah, and these are the different approaches that authors can take, you know. And it's also to do with censorship, which is not it's almost like an umbrella term, I guess. But censorship also includes. Um, it's not just the banning of a text, but you can have texts censored. Mm. They can still be published, you know, which I suspect, I guess, is what Moyan is always a bit worried about whenever he's writing something. Or um, Yan Lianka arguably now does much less, but has certainly in the past admitted to self-censorship and still had works published um, in, in an edited form in China. Yeah. Yeah. This has come up a few times in the show um, and in my reading and stuff. Mm. It seems like basically... Chinese, well, two things, um, China, and it's all both, both about the role of the editor in China. Um, 
editors seem to basically function as helping you to self-censor, keeping both the author and the publisher out of trouble. And maybe the downside of that is, put very simply, editors don't edit in the literary sense. They don't try to improve the book or or cut it down, improve it by cutting it down. Mm -hmm. Um, So sometimes Western trans or yeah, sorry, foreign translators have to serve as a little bit of an editor because they're taking a book that uh, on the Chinese side hasn't been cut down. Uh, One of the links you sent me, uh, one of the interviews with, I think, Flora, Flora Flora Drew and Majian, so the couple. Flora Drew, that's right. um, They are being asked about the translation and editing and if they bleed over into one another. And Majian said something pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. He said, the Mm -hmm. Chinese editions of the books, which you can get in, I don't know if you can still get them in Hong Kong, but certainly in Taiwan, maybe Hong Kong too, he considers to be the master texts, which is interesting because they're published second. It's a very strange convoluted backwards and forwards. He writes the thing in Chinese. His wife, Flora, brings it into English without editing anything out. It gets published in English. Her translation is published in English, but that has to go through British or American editors who want to uh, make changes, which is normal in English language and probably all European language publishing. But the Chinese edition tends to just get published as is. There's there's less uh, pa- editorial passes. So version yeah. that far less people read and which comes out second is the master text, but it's also the original language text. Yeah, isn't it interesting? Yeah, and, and it's funny when I first read that, I don't know if I've maybe interpreted it wrong because your interpretation is much better and from the publishing side um, is more your area. But I always assumed that the, what he meant by that was that because he writes uh, in Chinese that he just considers it the master text, you know, not the published Chinese yeah. text. So I wonder even if there are variations, as you're saying, there will be variations between uh, the the kind of obviously original manuscript, if you want to put it that way, and then the published uh, English, obviously, but then also the published Chinese. So yeah, it's a very good salient. Yeah, point. no, you're right. It's uh, yeah, he's clearly it's clearly a master, and it's the source language, but. Um, there will probably be more there. Like there's the exam- really easy example I always wheel out is um, Wolf Totem, which is much longer in the original. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a fat book in English, but um, mm-hmm. it would have been much larger had it not been for the translator, Howard Goldblatt, and maybe the editors at Penguin too, mm-hmm. who wanted something that they could <laughs> publish, something that if you dropped it on someone's head, wouldn't kill them by being like a, a tongue head. <laughs> but the Chinese edition has a huge afterward like essay sort of rant by Jiang Rong right. and yeah. it has uh, more chapters that just aren't in the English edition so that might be an example where the Chinese text a really clear example where the Chinese text is a master text in the sense that everything's mm. there and it's in the source language so yeah 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 and what's also interesting just to, uh, as an observation rather than a comment is that the these translators again i think in previous episodes you've focused on howard goldblatt uh, for sure but um this is maybe another episode where you're focusing on one translator who is translating one author's work mm. and to my knowledge i don't know that i might need to double check this but i'm not sure if flora drew has translated anyone no, else she hasn't. no at least not in, no. in the art the interview interviews uh, that you sent me no she said the only chinese she's translated i think is is Majian, and she doesn't really read yeah. much chinese literature understandably yeah. <laughs> i feel a little bit weird yeah. whenever me and my girlfriend are choosing a film i've loads of i've downloaded loads of chinese 
and other East Asian films, but it's like, Jesus Christ, I can't, I need some. <laughs> it was like being a foreigner in China. I needed to consume something more familiar so that my life, you know, my life doesn't become one thing. So I can understand why she just <laughs> keeps it in the, you know, keeps it as one thing, not the thing that dominates her life. It must be tough. Mm. There's a very good, I don't know if I sent you this link, but there's, there's a very good video of both of them um, presenting China Dream together at, in Edinburgh um, at the Literary Festival uh, from a few years back now. It must be, I think, 2018. Um, but you can see how they work together in that um, video and they're very, very good. It's, it's very interesting to see, because I guess, you know, with Howard Goldblatt, he's not married to Moyen, obviously. Um, I'm thinking also of Carlos Rojas, who translates Yan Lianca as a kind of staple go-to, mm -hmm. but um, Flora Drew and Majian's partnership is obviously very different. I mean, they've known each other for many, many years as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's just an interesting point of translation. Although yeah. Howard Goldblatt isn't a million miles away because um, this is something I noticed when I, very early on in the show, I was looking at Please Do Not Call Me or Please Don't Call Me Human, which he translated but he gave thanks to a lady. Now, let me just Google this because I want to get her name right. Done. There he is. Go Hawen. Right. So he gave thanks to someone called Sylvia Lin. And I was like, hmm, Sylvia yeah. Lin, who could that be? And I saw her name again when I went on Howard Goldblatt's Wikipedia page because that's his wife or at least his spouse. Oh. And that okay. made me very suspicious. Yeah. Like, wait a minute, he, this guy... This guy is married to a Chinese lady. What if she's doing all the work? Um, what if she's... Ah, now we're entering controversial areas. Yes, that's why I said what if. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, without pointing the finger at anyone, um, husband and wife mm -hmm. translate, or, or couples who are translators who at least feed back and forth between each other, that's a thing. Um, yeah. And yeah. there's a pretty famous example. Um, they were in-house translators with uh, Remy... I mean, when she, Chu Ban she, Gladys okay. Yang and Yang Xianyi. Yeah. Um, so Gladys was, she was not a Chinese lady with an English name, as I first thought. She was an English lady who married this guy, Yang Xianyi. And mm -hmm. I believe mm -hmm. some of, they translated stuff as individuals, but they also did joint translations as well. So uh, episode yeah. one, I did something they translated. It was Lu Xun's Diary of a Madman. And they, they translated... Mm -hmm. A collection of his works called what was it in um chinese was nahan what was the english oh man oh, um... it has a few different translations that's anyway uh the collection that was in was their translation so right from the start i was thinking about yeah couples who who, who translate but i can't yeah. think of anything even close to the same as uh, Majian and flora and the story of how they met is an interesting one too yeah no, I just have a note here of how they met, but maybe you've got more, but they were, it was during the Hong Kong handover, right? Right. What I remember from the interview, I don't remember the occasion. I guess that was it. Uh, but she had gone to interview him, I think. And during mm -hmm. the interview said something like, I'd like to translate something you've done. And right. I think in his, from his account, he was quite taken with her. I said, oh, she wants to translate me. And I, who knows, but it, um, they've ended up married with kids translate and yeah, now she's yeah. his translator so yeah which i think i mean i mean this translation argument it's a kind of easy one to go to right it's easy to be critical about translations i guess but i think anything that is um making these texts accessible in some way to a foreign audience is a good thing um the one critique that i would maybe have of and it's not of flora drew because actually i think her translations are, are, are 
well, we can't really easily tell because of the complex situation with the original Chinese or the master copies, but I suspect they're probably fairly accurate. Yeah. Um, but the problem with um, with translators, as you, you probably know more than I do about, is that if you have the same one, um, especially with a novel that's as politically kind of charged as Beijing Coman, which deals with um, moments of history which are being kind of almost autobiographically recalled is that Florida doesn't have the autobiographical experience that Majian has. I mean, she wasn't, Majian was at um, Tiananmen Square in 1989, but Floridrew wasn't. So it's, it's a kind of secondary, uh, if you want to argue the translation point, it comes as a kind of secondary history mm. then. Although, I don't know if you agree with uh, that. No, I think that's fair. I mean, I guess that would apply to almost every translator. Even if they're Chinese, who's to say that they're never going to be the same person as the author? But I like the counterpoint there is at least she's got someone literally in her house who she can tap on the shoulder and be yes, like, true. "What was what was Absolutely. that like being there?" It's a plus. Absolutely, and I think that that speaks in the text. I mean, it's obviously it's it's uh, the text itself is incredibly kind of detailed, and that kind of detail doesn't come from a, a, a relationship. Um, or a translation relationship, publishing relationship, where you're not very, very close to the source itself, right? Mm-hmm. A, a thing I try and ask whenever I have a translator on the show is like, did you did you um, work a lot with the author? And did they, if you did, did they appreciate you bugging them, fact-checking stuff, or did you drive them mad? And yeah. I think in one of those interviews, Madjian says, obviously lovingly, like, yeah, she does drive me insane with questions. It's awful. <laughs> <laughs> but at least it's not by email. Well, which is... Which is better than the opposite, where Moyen said of uh, Howard Goldblatt, you know, I don't care what he writes, you know, I mean, he can go and write, he's my voice in Chinese, in English, but, you know, I can't read it. So as long as it's a good book, then I don't mind, you know, and Yat Nyanka has said similar things as well. Mm. Yeah, it's something, I guess that there's something positive there in that he really trusts Howard Goldblatt, but yeah, some mm-hmm. trust is blind trust. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so before we get ourselves in trouble um, talking about spouses and translators and stuff, let's get ourselves in trouble in a different way, talking about the fleshy um, side to, um, to, the, to, to this stuff in this book. Yes. But I think maybe in Chinese lit in general, I mean, I don't, I don't have much more yeah. than impressions to go on. I don't know if you, you would. But I said before that I guess the original Chinese title of this book was translates yeah. to something like flesh, soil, meat soil, but probably more poetically like the yeah, land yeah. of flesh or something. And yeah. it's yeah. totally a fleshy book. Um, do you want to say mm. anything about that before I start going on and on? Yeah, I mean, this, I, I think that this kind of refers to, um, I mean, not just the physical book itself is a big kind of meaty novel, but um, the, the idea of um, something that we've kind of touched on, but haven't focused on as such, and I would bring it in here is this idea of like genre and what genre does this novel fit into? Because obviously it's a historical novel. It's not an alternate history novel, I don't think, or you could argue that it is, but I don't think it is. But it's a historical novel, but I would suggest that it's maybe more accurately a kind of historical horror novel. It does verge on the horrific um, by definition. I mean, some of the descriptions um, are very, very visceral, um, which would relate again back to the original Chinese version um, more accurately, I guess, than Beijing Coma, which seems a more, um, it's physical insofar as the coma itself, but that's more kind of um, the main character's condition. But interestingly, it's not the first time 
that Tiananmen has been, or the events of 1989 has been described as such. And it's probably, again, worth noting, we've talked about Shen Kai, but I bring her in because she's probably the only other author alongside Majian that I think the novels are quite comparable. Um, so she's the author of Northern Girls, but she describes in Death Fugue the um, Tiananmen moment as well. And it reckons, her novel reckons with the possibility for China's future. Um, I'll just like be very, very brief in kind of pre-saying this novel because I don't want to take it away from Beijing Coma, but it's just to highlight the idea that not just Beijing Coma, but this event itself is conducive for this kind of description. So in Shen Kai's um, novel, she describes the main character, uh, Yuan Ming Liu, who grapples with this idea of like the personal and political fallout of Tiananmen Square. And the key um, center point, which again is a kind of, we could use descriptions that we've used before, like Landmark or even Tiananmen Square itself being um, uh, at the center of the moment. Uh, the novel is, uh, centers itself around this enormous column of excrement um, in the main square of a fictional city, city called Beiping. Huh. So they're, they're obviously, yeah. So, and then, so this tower appears um, and provokes students and, and other people's intellectuals and things like that to protest. Um, and the government explains it um, away as mere kind of guerrilla dung and moves it, removes it quickly. And this is all, this is only the, in the opening pages of the novel, but the bulk of it takes place like 20 years after, which again, so you've got this playing with time, uh, which is similar with Beijing Coma. It takes place 20 years after the tower incident and it descends again into this kind of Huxley-esque dystopian techno-theocracy kind of thing as these novels tend to do. But the point to go back to is, is why is this um, kind of genre, it is historical, but it's also horrifying. There's elements of like, um, uh, maybe Angus, you can help me with the word here. You know, like the, I don't know. Are you looking for a Chinese word? No, no, I'm looking for an English word. Uh, visceral <laughs> um, body horror. The ab the abject maybe. Body horror. That's it. Yeah. No, it's body horror, right? I mean, it is body horror. I mean, you know, you can't think of anything worse than being stuck in a coma and being cognizant of the whole thing. Hmm. Um. Yeah. I think I think you're see what you mean there when you're saying like horror. Um, I, what that made me think of, and this might sound a bit silly at first, is um, mm. metal in China, heavy metal. Um, when I was thinking about All right, the intro okay. for the show, the music I start the shows with is like this kind of springy, cheerful hip hop beat thing, um, yeah. which sometimes I, I change out if if I, it doesn't feel right. And I was listening to, and this is, I mean, this is going to sound quite inappropriate for an episode on Beijing Coma, but I was listening on Shuffle to All yeah. My Music and um, a track, the first track from Metallica's Unjustice for All came on. I'm pretty sure mm. that album is from 1989. Let me just check that. Oh, go yeah. for it. Oh, 88. Think... <laughs> it's from 88. So the year before. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And the intro, like it it's immediately becomes pretty inappropriate. It becomes like a da -da 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 heavy metal song. Yeah. But it opens with these, I think, a twin guitars kind of mournfully sounding like they're building up to something nasty or scary. Mm. And I was like, oh, maybe I should mm -hmm. use this as an intro mm -hmm. for Beijing Coma, this episode. And I, I decided against it. But it occurs to me, as you were talking about the, the horror, trying to read the book as a horror novel, um, it, the thought popped back into my head. And now I'm thinking, if you look up like Chinese metal bands, at least today, yeah, the biggest scene in Chinese metal seems to be black metal. Yeah, yeah. Which is like, um, 
it can't well it can be very sort of cheesy and silly or it can be very grim and it can have a bit of a mm-hmm. historical angle and like all those chinese black metal bands i've seen on Bandcamp, a lot of them they're drawing on like chinese or east asian beasts or mythology maybe that's got nothing to do with um historical events but the general tone is like quite serious quite mm-hmm. if not bleak then uncheerful and grim and it makes me think of when i've read through chinese history of some of the things that have happened never mind in the 20th century yeah sometimes yeah. the body count it just it's mind-boggling like if you th- like thinking of like i don't know things like the from european history the uh the mongol or the hun invasions or the collapse of the roman empire the black plague things like mm-hmm. that seem to have happened in china so many times when the, yeah, the, yeah the history can be so um maybe not upsetting um disturbing to read if, if you try and take seriously what it must have been like to be there for these various events mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um very yeah. interesting yeah and it's, a, it's not to interrupt you but it's a good point and it's something that um i think that it often requires a bit of uh you know i mean we're looking at chinese literature well pretty much all the time <laughs> um but if you're not as familiar with it or if your um focus is not so much on china you do forget um recently i was at the um shanghai the propaganda museum the propaganda oh, poster yeah? museum did you ever yeah go? and i picked up um a chinese poster of fidel castro posing heroically it's on my wall oh oh yeah so that, is that the one with his hand and a kind of mm-hmm. like as if he's reading notes off yep. his fist yep. or something mm-hmm. yeah so um it's relocated so i don't know if you went to the previous location but it's now in a nice kind of um up story office oh. you know with nice views and things like this it's moved from the old basement Great. that it used to be in. that's that's um, a happy um, story i suppose in a way yeah which is good because it's got a, a nice collection although um they do spell elizabeth taylor's name wrong i did notice but they seem to have some odd picture of her visiting at some point uh. Um, but anyway, the point is that um, I, w- I was there, yeah, <laughs> odd connection. But anyway, I was there with a friend. You know, he, he lives in China, of course, but uh, is not as, I guess, into the history or, uh, you know, just knows bits and pieces. But we were talking about things like the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution and the dates and the figures and things like that. And it is, it's very kind of, it's interesting, though, that um, maybe it's out of turn to say so, but in a general kind of consensus way that people don't know as well, um, the, the death counts and, and the, the numbers and the figures of these events. But this is all, which is what struck me um, looking at these posters, this is all very, very recent history. I mean, it's within the last 60, 70 years. It's not even within the last 100. Yeah, totally. Um, a, w- a way that I try and think about, I guess this isn't as far back as uh, things like the Great Leap Forward, but um, mm. the unslightly uncanny thing about the cultural revolution going from the late 60s into yeah. and petering out in the 70s that's a very close parallel with the sort of hippie new left movements in the us and the uk yeah. and europe it's about the same time and there is maybe something they've got something in common in that they're sort of radical lefty popular in, in some ways populist movements but on the other hand they couldn't be more different because one was about liberation and the other was yeah only about liberation in, on, 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 in words. Otherwise, it was absolute misery for so many people. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the other thing is, it's not that long ago. Um, plenty of people are still alive who live through that. And I think a, a way I weirded myself out, even my first year in China, when I didn't know all the history, mm. was 
whenever I saw an old person, well, not, not whenever I saw an old person, but occasionally it would hit me. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing a lot of old people here and God yeah, knows yeah. what have they seen. Maybe some, not yeah, that much, yeah. but I'm sure loads of them had lived through stuff that no one I know in the UK lived through. Yeah, I mean, you're talking the same generation in our context, perhaps, that saw, you know, that at least, uh, you know, you're talking about the Beatles, right? You know, I mean, I know that my parents would talk about that time period as, as being the Beatles and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, over here, it's a very different, of course, it's a very different reality. And I know people who um, whose parents were at the bad end of the cultural revolution and they don't talk about it, you know, which is, I suppose, the difference, you know, is that there are things that are so, um, still exist as historical kind of traumas that are just not spoken about or at least are spoken about in very hushed terms. Yeah, I knew one girl in Shanghai who, um, she had a grandpa she referred to as my cool grandpa who um, likes to read the news from Taiwan Mm. and... um, Mm doesn't believe everything he sees in the state news and so on and i think had a vpn or something and i think i'm yeah. asked her like is that because he's a free spirit or whatever and he's and she thinks she said well kind of but also in the republic of china my family were rich and they got completely well they were not allowed to be rich once the revolution happened but i guess they must have squirreled yeah. the money away somewhere because they came out the other mm-hmm. end in mm-hmm. the 80s and were rehabilitated but for this cool grandpa, he's not going to forget. He maybe doesn't, he's not trying, he, you know, he's not trying to overthrow the Shanghai municipal government, but the memories yeah. live on. I was going to say he's maybe an exception in that his grandchildren willing to, were willing to talk about him and some of the stuff that they went through, even if it's just hints rather than the full story. I don't, I don't know if that's the norm. I don't know if it's the norm, no. I mean, I suppose that's a, that's a kind of project in itself, isn't it? It's a kind of difficult one to answer because you would have to have a decent enough cross-survey of people to have a decent answer to it. I suppose to return to the question about Chinese literature having the reputation for being fleshy, I mean, maybe this is a kind of, in the way that we think about periodization. Um, maybe especially in kind of more British canon, we think of, you know, periods of, of, of literature. Maybe this is a, a, a kind of periodization element of Chinese literature, because when you've come through um, a history which has been, which has had such vicissitudes of up and down times, you know, famine, starvation, hunger, of course, you're going to get a peak of people in Chinese literature talking about food. I mean, food recurs in Chinese literature a lot. Also, like human senses, um, and things like this. It's interesting, though, as well, that you related um, the novel earlier to thinking about things to do with sci-fi. I mean, Beijing Coma, to me, on a very first reading, if you're thinking of comparative texts, the one thing that I relate it to is Frankenstein. Mm. A number of years ago, I had heard quite a convincing um, analysis of Frankenstein being, you know, obviously it's, it's about the monster and scientific discovery and things like this, but there was a very good analysis of it made at a conference and the speaker was arguing that the creature, the Frankenstein's monster, is built of um, obviously different body parts from different people, but clearly people who were not wealthy and, you know, they were stolen from graves and things like this. And that the monster itself is the kind of body politic rising up. It's an, an, an analysis of Frankenstein as the French Revolution. And Dai Wei has similar kind of parallels to that, that he is comatosed, he's out the game, but is he the body politic as well. I mean, is he, has he been sedated and numbed beyond belief by the context of the environment in which he lives? But it's, it's, 
you know, to do with the flesh and, and the inability, his body functions work, right? But he can't do anything about it. Everything's being used with, really without his consent. Mm, yeah, I think in one of the, I think it was in one of the articles he sent me, Majian, he offered, in a way some offers maybe don't, he seems to be pretty ready, ready and willing to just tell you what the book means or at least give you his interpretations. Yes, that's true. <laughs> We've kind of avoided that, but it's a, it's a fair yeah. point. Like, I mean, he, he, he is vocal. I mean, he is a vocal and, and he writes not just novels, but obviously he does these um, op-eds and, and uh, opinion pieces for various outlets. Um, it's up to other people to debate whether or not they think that that should be taken hand in hand with his books. Mm. But I think Oh, it lets me say what I'm about to say next. So I'm grateful to him for that. Um, cheers. Cheers, Madian. Mm. Um, he said that, in a way, I, think, I don't know if he even prefaced it, but in a way, maybe he just said it outright. Um, but it was something along the lines of, Dai Wei is really the last guy alive, in a way, or he's the last one carrying right. on the memories. Right. Everyone else has been forced into being walking comatose people, which is, it seems like a really blunt reading, but like gets to the point pretty, pretty succinctly. And what you said about Chinese sci-fi, that's actually making me think of... I don't know. It makes me think of something from the three body problem, which is the one thing yeah. I'm always bringing up where I'll try not to spoil this too much, but later on in the second and third books, there are various points where humanity, the main place where humanity are resident, be it on earth or a ship is about to be pulverized or they're either are, they are definitely just, they're going to die or be wiped out or it's looking extremely likely but there's always someone else who has made their escape or happens to just coincidentally happens to be elsewhere who survives and is carrying on the little figurative torch or whatever, whether they're trying to mm. or not. And that, I mean, spoilers, even at the very end of the universe, someone is still locked away somewhere carrying the torch. And that's, again, it's not a million miles away from, from, from Beijing coma. It's only in this sort of isolated hidden place where you can continue the thing that began yeah yeah and, and and yeah even within that one of the things that comes up in Beijing coma is something which I don't think that he actually makes a massive amount of a deal in it in Beijing coma maybe it's a thought that came after but it certainly re reappears big time in China dream um, and it's this kind of similar idea of um, other, other writers write about um, biopolitical control and things like this um, but he has a section, um, I think, near the, uh, sort of near the end. And this is Dai Wei when he's um, in his coma thinking about the future. And he says, perhaps if I make it into the 21st century, scientists will be able to embed a microchip into my brain that will replace my wounded hippocampus. By then, the government will have created a ministry of memory which will produce silicon chips that mimic the pattern of a brain's nerve cells. Once a chip is inserted into my head, it will connect with my neurons bypassing damaged tissue. I wonder whether the chip will be able to register the scent of Tianyi's body and commit it to my long-term memory. So again, you've got this almost sci-fi bit, but it does return to the fleshy bit at the end, right? Talks about scent of body and things mm -hmm. like this. Well, now you've got to be thinking about the, um, the virus again, because he's imagining a way, <laughs> he's stuck at a biological yeah. impasse there. Um, there's a part of yeah. his brain which is never going to heal itself despite no matter how much the mm. rest of his body reacts there's an impasse there 
But at the same time, it's not beyond the reach of science in the near future to find a way to fix it. Or I think it's implied if he's able to get out the country, there might be um, medical fixes. Cure doesn't even seem the right word because his mind is still there. He he just needs this one little piece of wire to be reconnected and then he could, Mm -hmm. well, even if his body is completely degraded and he's blind or something, Mm. um, he'll be back active again and it's basically where the uk and maybe the us and other badly governed countries have reached with the virus where there is no way of solving it with government policy or with um, social behavior it's too far gone the only way out is to roll out a vaccine and not so long ago um here the vaccine didn't you know the vaccine didn't exist it was a it was it was a hope and a promise and now Mm -hmm. that you know it wasn't as perhaps it was sci-fi in a way but it's it's still on the cusp of happening people are like my dad's had Mm -hmm. it my grandparents have had their first shots Mm, good to hear thank god but the prospect of return to normal it's yeah we're we can't it can't be done politically or socially anymore it has to be done through technology and maybe that's a metaphor for china the social and political change is basically ruled out Mm. and the only the, the all dreams for the future are based on I guess techno utopias, or at least it's yes, a world yeah. made better through proficiency and technocracy and bureaucracy rather than people like yeah. Magi and in a square protesting for freedom. That's gone. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, that's exactly almost the kind of narrative. If you wanted to go from straight into Be- uh, from Beijing coma straight into a China dream, that's exactly the kind of trajectory it takes. But almost the opposite kind of conclusion from what um, your outcome would be, whereby that um, passage where they're talking about the uh, microchip and the Ministry of Memory is taken by Magian to the kind of satirical nth degree where it becomes um, a really quite a sinister kind of, uh, you know, techno- and maybe this is where the, the, the novel is somewhat kind of um, crosses into that genre of like historical horror novel because the future is an unseen kind of thing, right? So the consequences of, of these um, technological uh, or, or bodies and human bodies being merged with technology is a kind of horrifying thing. And it has been since Frankenstein, right? Yes. And that this actually is getting quite uncanny because um, the last episode I did was on a horror book basically it was some uh, mm. uh, Lovecraftian style stories from the Chinese internet which oh, were yeah. at least on the surface level not there's nothing political about them but the two translators especially one of them are open well yes definitely one of them and the other I'll say nothing um, is interested in or is this strain of thinking that I, I think it goes back into uh, the last quite far back into the last decade but it it hit quite a surge in popularity with the election of Donald Trump and it was this line of thinking called neo-reactionary thinking which is about as awful as it sounds they want (laughs) they basically again it's the are we the bad guys thing it's a hope for a dark future the the way of skipping over the um adoration of like kings and states becoming corporations or vice versa the the non just outright fascist side of it is a hope for like technology bringing us to some trend um what's the word post-human state but there's like an if there's like a some sort of frisson in the fact that it might be horrific and awful and that's perhaps mm-hmm. why these guys are drawn to lovecraft because there's something appealing about the horrible world or the incomprehensibly 
strange world beyond human the human so it's i never thought we'd mm. <laughs> link up this episode and that one but maybe that's how we've done it cross boundaries yes and to yeah because again if you're thinking of an all-powerful state that's also corporate is not a million miles away from today's communist party yeah exactly mm. it's a scary thought yeah <laughs> and moving away from scary thoughts into um the safe yes. world of fluff i've got some miscellaneous questions for you okay the first one is a uh, chinese word of the day um is there any word that springs first to mind when you're thinking of beijing coma that we could give to the listeners oh gosh i think the only word that we can call it is uh now my chinese but uh dbl right landmark dbl i yeah i've not heard that one before yeah, my rationale behind this was um, just the the landmark itself, Tiananmen Square. I mean, if anything, you know, I mean, to a casual reader, I guess the one thing that this does bring um, the reader back to is the event itself and Tiananmen Square and that kind of historical moment. So we asked ourselves, uh, we asked the question, is it a landmark novel? And I suppose just for that reason, it is, right? Right. Landmark. Got it. Okay. So that's DBL. I'll put that in the show notes for listeners. Next silly question. If Beijing Coma was a drink, and this can be a hard drink, (laughs) a soft drink, a hot drink, a cold drink, what would it be? And I'm going to, I didn't put this in the questions I gave you, but I'm censoring. You can't just say a cocktail that's a mix of lots of different things. Oh man, that's exactly what I was going to go for. (laughs) That seems to be, there seems to be a magnet inside the cocktail of lots of different things. It draws in all my guests. That's true. Um, can you think of anything else? Uh, it's on been tools? a cocktail of an episode, I suppose. This one has. We've um, we've gone in way more directions than usual. You're right about that. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Okay. So it can't be a cocktail. I did have a clever answer for this one, actually. But it's a steal. It's a steal from um, Majan himself. So he, um, at that Edinburgh presentation that he did at the International Festival, um, he talked about his work um, and the idea of memory. And he said that one of the things, I don't think that he's a traditionalist in the sense that he kind of goes back to um, traditional Chinese tales, but he said one of the traditional Chinese tales that he was told when he was young um, was the one, the one of uh, Meng Po, the old lady Meng. <clears throat> this was the goddess of forgetfulness in Chinese mythology who serves, now Angus, you can pull me up if this doesn't constitute as a drink, but she serves a soup on the bridge of forgetfulness. That's that sounds fine. And the soup wipes the. I think I can get yeah. away with this. And the soup wipes <laughs> the soup wipes the memory of the person so that they can reincarnate into the next life without the burdens of the previous one. So he said that as a child, this was the kind of story that he quite liked, and it relates to the ideas of uh, memory, I suppose, that we've been stewing over. Okay, well, I'll have to put in the whoever I have next on the show, hard drinks, okay, soft drinks, okay, hot, cold, okay, soup is also okay, but no, no vague cocktails and no, no cocktails. The other one yeah, is, um, I'm happy with that. The other, I think, one that people gravitate to is um, a very strong black coffee if it's an intense well that's what i'm having just now but yeah (laughs) i was going to suggest i mean if i was going to be totally serious i was going to say maybe absinthe or something like that but no Mm. you know we'll go with old lady mom yeah the soup thankfully there are lots of very strong drinks out there but i think a lot of chinese literature is a very strong drink compared with like british literature or something there's only so many yeah which is a nice old gray yeah there's only so many irving welsh's in british lit <laughs> whereas i think there's a lot of chinese oh you'll um, have the you'll have the middle brow people out to get you now Angus. No, not the middle <laughs> they're the most dangerous um uh, yeah. yeah okay and last 
fun question kind of at least the last one the last miscellaneous question your self promo yeah. slot um is there anything you've done that we can direct the listeners to yeah this is a preemptive one i suppose i've got a couple of things um hopefully coming out this year in terms of publications one i'm not sure how much i can say about it but it is on uh, yan Nyanka. right um and it is a new uh routledge companion to his work oh. the first um so that one is one to look out for um but for just now um i suppose twitter so if you want to check out uh, any updates or things like that i do try to be good on twitter sometimes better than others mm-hmm. um but i'm at rnldtrnc just to confuse your listeners even further I don't know if, if I'm if I'm being naughty here plugging your Instagram, but if you're if you're like me and stuck in lockdown Britain, then you want to wish you were in Shanghai and cry yourself to sleep. Just follow Ronald on um, Instagram. <laughs> Thank you very much. You make me sound much more interesting than I am. But yeah. Yeah. I I still follow quite a few of my old um, friends who um, yeah. are still in Shanghai and other parts of China on Instagram, and it's like bloody hell, they're in a parallel universe. They're enjoying their lives. Yeah, slightly different. Yeah, it is indeed. Yeah. Um, right. Okay. Um, last set of questions. Further reading questions. So mm. this is a, it's a subjective <clears throat> one, and this doesn't have to be restricted yeah. to Chinese literature, not at all. If okay. our listeners want to read more Majian or more like him, where should they look? Yeah. So um, in terms of Majian himself, I mean, I think his standout books, other than um, Beijing Coma, are China Dream. We've mentioned it a lot. It's really um, his most recent. And again, very kind of uh, political novel up to date. Um, another one which I really like, which kind of gets swept under the carpet, no pun intended, is Red Dust, um, which is uh, like a semi-autobiographical travel book. Um, describes his journey through China um, after the anti-spiritual pollution campaign. So that's worth a read. And again, if it's Majian, the other book that I would recommend is Stick Out Your Tongue, which we've also um, talked about before. Um, in terms of works like him, we've mentioned Shen Kai's Death Fugue. I think that that's worth a read. It's kind of difficult to get, though. I don't know if it's very easy to buy copies. Uh, Angus, you mentioned Madeleine Thien's Do Not Say We Have Nothing. I think that that's kind of worthwhile dipping into just for another very, very different take on this event, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I will press on to the very last questions now. What are you reading just now? Yeah, so just now, uh, again, it's kind of connected, which is totally by accident, but it's a book, it's a non-fiction um, called Beijing from Below um, by Harriet Evans. Uh, it's at University of Westminster. It's published by Duke University Press. Um, and this is about the demolition and construction of the Beijing's Dashilar area, the area south of Tiananmen Square. Uh, and this was in preparation for the 2008 Olympics. So we've talked about this earlier. And basically what Evans is doing is in this is she's capturing the kind of last gasps of the um, residents' life in this area through oral histories and memories of different neighbourhoods and families. Cool. Um, and I was, very, I was very lucky. I met her um, at a conference uh, in uh, Barcelona a number of years ago now um, when she was kind of writing the book um, and it's just it's just very nice to see how it's come into publication um, as well as just kind of being a very kind of eminently readable account of history which is now at least on the surface disappeared. In terms of non uh, in terms of fiction I was recently gifted a book called Balloon it's Tibetan um, in Chinese <laughs> um, there was a movie made of it as well I think this year so I'm reading that in terms of fiction. Cool 
Berlin. Okay, so Berlin and Beijing from below. Got yeah, it. both good reads. Okay. Can I also yeah. make one more plug, Angus? Do it, do it. <laughs> um, I meant to mention this in terms of books to, uh, if you want to read more, more Majan or more like him, this is in the more like him category, but it's also, it's a non-fiction as well, but it's something that we haven't kind of looked at it in a great deal of depth here, um, but it's more about censorship and it, it does contextualize um, uh, China after uh, Tiananmen Square. And I've mentioned it once in passing, but it's worth highlighting um, just in terms of thinking about ideas of memory and history. And it's Louisa Lim's The People's Republic of Tiananmen. Um, right. And it's a really good um, non-fiction side read. If like me, I like to read kind of non-fiction along with the fiction. But if you're reading Beijing Coma, if it's your first read of it, it's a really good one to read alongside it because it just theorizes this idea of collective amnesia um, and the texts complement one another very, very well. And I'll use this chance actually to plug the one non-fic book I've read on the topic because um, it's a mm. talking of interesting perspectives. I think this is almost as interesting as it gets, although certainly not impartial. It's uh, Zhao Ziyang's Prisoner of the State. So this was the book that uh, this is a former big shot from the 80s Chinese government who was yeah. essentially on the side of the protesters. Um, the event proved his downfall, spent his life under house arrest, and then recorded this thing on tapes and smuggled it out. And a little bit like Ma Jian, it's probably not, well, it might exist in Chinese, but certainly not, certainly not in the PRC. It's a very interesting read. Um, and a little bit like Beijing Kuma actually kind of painfully goes through step by step um, although I think it's shorter. But anyway, um, yeah, that's our that's our um, book recommendations done. I think there's more than enough to fill up the show notes now. So unless there's any really final words you'd like to make, I guess, uh, Ronald, I'll thank you for coming on the show. And thanks for being patient every time I called you Roland. No, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, enjoyed it. And thanks for letting me ramble about my kind of research and, and interest in Majian. Yeah. That's fine. Um, I mean, I ramble so much, I can not I can never begrudge a guest for, for rambling as well. It is just as well. Yeah. And that brings us to the end of the show. So thank you again, Ronald, for coming on. Uh, that was a really fantastic chat the two of us had. I hope you, the listeners, enjoyed it a lot. Now, there's one plug in particular that I think I'd really like to push for this sort of end of, end of show section. And that's the Patreon, because I've done, this time around, two bonus shows for Beijing Coma. I've got one which is my sort of preliminary thoughts. So when I was about halfway through the book, I sat down and I laid out all the thoughts I had about Beijing Coma that far with a very kind of close analysis of like the blurb and the cover and stuff. We went a little bit into that on the show, but you can get all my full thoughts on that in that bonus episode. So that's one of the two bonus episodes. The other one is a short conversation that Ronald and I had after our interview where we were talking about something we didn't really touch on in the main chat but which is very important to Beijing Coma, the 1989 protests and maybe just Tiananmen Square in general and that's the idea of place and the landmarks and the different geographic points of the square and their features and how they relate to time so have how they've remained fixed over time and how they haven't necessarily remained fixed over time and we also got onto the idea of like flesh as well. We, I mean, we scratched the surface of that, mentioning the fact that Chinese book's title is Land of Flesh, but we got more into that in that segment. And I've made that a bonus show too. 
So if you really enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more from myself and uh, Ronald on Beijing Coma, then I really suggest you check out the Patreon. From just one USD a month, you can get access to all the bonus shows. I put them up very regularly these days, something like a show every fortnight or so is the average. So a nice addition to the main feed for sure. If you enjoy my solo ramblings um, and want more solo shows, well, that's that's the ideal place because most of the episodes up on there are solo. It's just me um, speaking into the microphone. Another place that you can get access to all these shows is the Podbeam Premium feed. So it's pretty much the same as Patreon, but it's a one-off uh, payment, 10 USD, and you get all the bonus shows forever, and there's no recurring payment or anything like that. You can also um, help out the show financially on Buy Me A Coffee and PayPal, and there's links to all these things in the show notes. Just click support the show, and also on the podcast homepage, you'll see the link there. So yeah, the other things that I want to plug are just the things you might expect. So social media, if you've got feedback or want updates on the show and what I'm up to, there's Instagram and Twitter and Discord. Those are your best places to go. So Twitter, it's just my own one, at Angus Likes Words. I tweet mostly about the show, to be honest. Um, the show's official Instagram is at TrueTrueFic, at T-R-C-H-F-I-C. Um, we have a Discord, which is a good place to talk to me or other listeners um stefan uh stefan yeah stefan rusinov from the episode i did on tantra is pretty active in there so if you want to talk to stefan discord's a great place to do that same with uh, dylan levi king actually he's fairly active in there youtube is i mean i don't really recommend you listen to the show on youtube but i've been making um like animated videos for these episodes using um adobe after effects so i don't know um check it out it's pretty cool what i've done um that's not really an urgent plug though and last of all the most important thing you can do for the show is spread the word um organically human being to human being so tell your friends tell your family tell your teachers tell your glands tell your lungs tell the officers assigned to make yearly checkups on your mobile fleshy tomb or just tell someone who you think might like the show. That might work too. But anyway, until next time, next episode, Saijian. <laughs>